Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Geconia, east of the Albino Hills and south of the raging Lucistic River, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, citizens of Gecko Nation. I hope everybody's doing great tonight. Tonight is October 5th, 2014. And we're going to make history again tonight, folks. Uh, This show is something that is long overdue, and also it's going to be very enlightening for a lot of us. All right. Um, There there are certain topics in the the world of leopard gecko morphs that just continue to cause... um, discussions, spirited debates, and uh, just all that arguments. And it it usually has to do with genetics. And uh, tonight we have a geneticist, Dr. Ben Morell, with us. And we're going to get into some serious discussion about enigmas, enigma syndrome. We're going to get into the albino strains. Uh, We're going to get into stuff like why it was so difficult to create a patternless, the first patternless albino and other things. I'm going to go ahead and bring on my co-host, Tim Walton from Slice of the Jungle. Tim, how are you tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Dave? Good, good. What else are we going to be talking with Ben about tonight? We have a very long list of uh, topics to cover, and I just want to start off, I want to uh, correct you a little bit. We're not just going to be talking about morphs. This is, you know, genetics, and a lot of these genetics uh, the terms and every terminology that we're going to be using uh, pertains to, to everything. Um, I think tonight's show, there's going to be something for everyone to learn. It's certainly a show that I'm going to listen to at least a couple more times. Um, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to want to go back and, and listen to this one over and over. I just think that there's so much to learn from uh, Dr. Morell. And uh, Ben is, it does a great job at explaining uh, very complicated terms and kind of making them simpler so that we all can understand exactly what he's talking about. So I'm really looking forward to the show tonight. Me too. So he's going to be able to thumb it down for us pretty good. That's the, that's the easy way to say it, right? Exactly. <laughs> all for right. Us, well, for uh, us uneducated folks. Right, right. Well, you know what? We're all trying to educate ourselves. That's a good thing. We all want to learn, and we all want to figure it out. Anybody that's gotten, uh, you know, pretty far in the leopard gecko game and breeding, you know, you want to understand how these genes work. You want to be able to better your projects. You want to be able to consistently evolve your, you know, your lines every year. And, you know, this knowledge is going to be crucial, and you know, to, to making you a better breeder. And, you know, when I first started breeding leopard geckos seriously about five years ago, I had no clue about genetics. I admit it. And, you know, it took me five years to figure out where the good genes are, who's got the good lines, who's, you know, geckos are the best, uh, how to breed them appropriately so you're going to get the results that you want. I mean, and it takes trial and error in a lot of cases to figure this out. So we're going to give everybody a head start tonight. Uh, and, uh, you know, give you your knowledge a little bit of a boost. Well, Tim, um, in addition to this show, you know, I'm going to hopefully be able to tell everybody, to, you know, all the new people out there to listen to this show. 
when they ask me genetics questions. But uh, in addition to this show, where where should we tell people, the new folks, where should we tell them to go to get some good knowledge? Geckoforums.net. That's right. Excellent. You win again. You win that, you win that prize every week. Here it is. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Herpentime Radio is my inspiration for GNR. Justin and JD do a terrific show every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern and have an amazing archive of shows available for download. Visit them at blogtalkradio.com slash herpentime and on Facebook. That's right, folks. Make sure you check out Herpentime Radio. Those guys do a great job. Um, you know, we also have a sponsorship opportunity opening up soon here at Gecko Nation Radio. So if you're a business um, in the reptile world and you're providing a good product, uh, give me a, shoot me an email at geckonationradio uh, at gmail.com, and maybe we can, uh, we can get, you, get you all set up to advertise with us, and you'll be able to reach thousands of our listeners. All right, so speaking of sponsors, Gecko Nation Radio would not be possible without our amazing sponsors. And I say it all the time, our sponsor plugs are sincere, folks. These people are really are the best at what they do and uh, in the businesses that they're in. Check them out and give them a chance. Here's some of them, and you'll hear the rest at the halfway point. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Kate Burton specialize in the best super tangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com. 
or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. All right, folks, we are back, and uh, we're going to go right ahead and jump into the news with our anchorman, Steve Barker. Good evening, Gekonians. Hey, good evening, Steve. How are you? Good, how are you? Hanging in here, still doing it. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> yeah, what's going on with you? Um. Well, I picked up a uh, leopard Mojave. I don't know if you saw the pictures of that. Yes, I did. Very nice snake. What are you going to do with that guy? I'm not positive, but I think I'm going to put it to a cinnamon. I want to try and get it darker. Nice. <laughs> You want to get them even... Oh, okay. So you want to make super yeah. dark ones. Yeah. I think it'd be wow, cool. cool. Yeah, definitely. I like that. Yeah. How's the geckos coming? Oh, my God. I'm still getting clutches. <laughs> I can't even believe wow. it. <laughs> really? Yep. Yeah. I'm I'm kind of winding down here, thank God. I just have a, one reptivator filled with eggs. Everything else is... Empty. My big uh, incubator is empty. Thank God. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm yeah. I'm I'm getting close to where I might need more room. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> cool. That's what we want. Yeah. Really. All right. So we're gonna head into one of our favorite kind of stories: snakes in the bathroom. I know we've had oh, a lot of stories about snakes in the bathroom. <laughs> so, so the title is Homeowner Left Terrified After Snake Bursts Through the Bathroom Light Fixture. And I know we've seen this before. So. All right. In Queensland, Australia, a huge python exploded through their bathroom light fitting. <laughs> oh, man. Images show a carpet python poking its head out of a hole in the in the middle of the ceiling where the light fixture is. (laughs) It's crazy. I I think the last time it was a ball python. I think through a vent. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, something I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Lady was showering and it it got in through the shower. It got scared her while she was showering or something, right? Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. I love it. All right, and Tim sent me this story. After serving the gecko lovers around the world for over 15 years, the Global Gecko Association has reluctantly decided to close its operations. 
Regretfully, with significant increases in postage and printing costs and declining income, the board could not find a financially sound course for its future. Since the GGA, GGA's mission is to educate the public about geckos, they will donate its remaining assets, including copies of its respected publication, Gecko, to Herp Digest, the only e-newsletter that reports on the latest scientific conservation and husbandry news for all reptiles. So that's pretty cool. Um, Herp Digest will soon take over their publication sales and its website. And Julia Bergman, president of the Global Gecko Association, says, it is with deep sorrow we say goodbye. We salute our past and current members to individuals who served on the GGA board and to contributing writers. Thank you to each and everyone who made the GGA successful over the past 15 years, being a part of the GGA. No, you're on the air, Dave. Oh, sorry. I thought I wasn't. (laughs) Okay. Being a part of the GGA has been a fun and stimulating experience. That's kind of, kind of depressing. It is it is very sad, Steve. Um I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh didn't even know about the Global Gecko Association. It was a really really cool uh information sharing um entity and uh it's really unfortunate that they're closing their doors. But uh, mainly, yeah. you know, I wanted people to um, to know that uh, you know they're they're passing the torch kind of to uh, Herp Digest and for people yeah. to look into that and and keep uh, you know keep abreast of what of what's going on. Um, you know, it's just the the changing times. You know, um, the Global Gecko Association you know started out when uh, you know before the internet and um, and then when the internet started, they did. Uh, they did have a really cool email list that um, I was a part of even before I was a part of any forums, I think, um, where all of the members would just email a group, a big group email to each other and ask a question and answer the questions. And everybody would just get, you know, those, those emails every day. And, um, and it was really cool to to be a part of that, and it's just unfortunate that um, it wasn't able to to keep up with um, you know with the changes in the times. Yeah. Yeah, that's horrible. But at least it'll carry on. Yeah, and also the the magazines were incredible. You know, they were so well um, put together. The photographs were incredible. Again, when when the internet was just starting out, um, they were, you know, just uh, just really cool to uh, to get your hands on those. And I actually have a few. Um, maybe we'll work something out where uh, we'll do an auction or something with them, um, and and get some out to uh, some of our listeners. Cool. All right. All right. Sorry, I was a little little distracted here, guys. Uh, I'm trying to get our <laughs> guests lined up in the background here. All right. Uh, all right, Steve, what else you got? All right. 
So our, our last story, and I always try to find a gecko story. And when I found this, I could not pass this story up, as unbelievable as it is. <laughs> Indonesian woman gives birth to lizard. <laughs> That's the <laughs> title of it. Did you? All right. Yeah. <laughs> Local media is reporting that an Indonesian woman allegedly gave per- birth to a lizard and is now being threatened by an angry lynch mob that is accusing her of practicing witchcraft. <laughs> she <laughs> she gave birth to the gecko following an eight-month pregnancy, according to I- India. Though scientists say it is impossible, uh, it's hard to read this, impossible that a woman was pregnant with a lizard. (laughs) Officials are, are, this is crazy, officials are sending in a team of experts to get to the bottom of this mystery. (laughs) Come on. That's so funny. (laughs) This is crazy. Um, let's see. She gave birth to the creature in May in the remote, I'm not sure if I'm going to say this not right, Oneonto village where a midwife delivered the lizard. The news of the lizard birth led to the woman and her family receiving death threats and being accused of witchcraft. Unbelievable. <laughs> I know, it's it's unreal. <laughs> That's obviously a hoax to try to get, I don't know, boost tourism or something, I would think. I don't know. Yeah, really. Ridiculous. <laughs> but I can never find, I usually can't find a gecko story, and I was like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this one because <laughs> it was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Was that your last one, Steve? Yeah, that was. All right. I'm going to fire up the flush capacitor. Take us back in time. All right. Okay, June 14th, 1909. The article read, Found a lizard alive in a rock. Reptile was embedded at a depth of nine feet, but came to life slowly. In Great Falls, Montana, in a coal mine near... It's hard to read this, it's kind of... Moses Martindale, a miner, uncovered a lizard about nine feet from the surface and embedded in solid rock. There is no conceivable method by which the lizard could have entered the cavity since nature closed the gap thousands of years ago. When uncovered, the reptile was torpid, but when brought to the light, it showed more signs of life. Apparently, it had not been affected by its long fast and imprisonment in the solid rock. <laughs> and it doesn't say what what type of reptile or what type of lizard it was. But okay. I thought that was pr- pretty cool. Yeah. Well, what do you think the, the real explanation is for what happened there? I don't think it was solid rock. You know, right. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I I know I've heard of you know toads living for a long time underground. You know, without you know without 
surfacing and without eating or anything, but I don't I don't think so. <laughs> well, I think I, it just squeezed into a you know a tight crevice and hung out in there, and um, you know the person that found it didn't think that obviously didn't know that the lizard could actually squeeze itself into yeah. a tight space like that. So they probably thought it was embedded, but yeah, it's just going yeah. to tell you back then. You know, yeah. people didn't think think that way. They didn't know. Yeah, nineteen oh nine. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, interesting. All right, cool. Well, Steve, thank you very much for the news, and uh, make sure you uh, give out your information so folks can find you out there. Um, check me out on Facebook and YouTube under BC Barker Creations. That's right, and also uh, Steve is now gradually uploading all the past shows to YouTube. So if you guys want to watch a slideshow and listen to our shows uh, from the past, you'll be able to. And uh, what are you doing? You're doing the most recent ones and then gradually working back, right, Steve? Yeah, and there, and I believe the first two episodes are on, on there already. The very Our fir- very first two episodes are on there also. Great. Yeah. Nice, nice. Awesome. Thank you for putting the time into doing that. I know it's not easy. I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, no problem. All right, cool. We will see you next week, Steve. All right, I'll see you there. All right, take care. All right, folks, and before we get started into the rest of the show, uh, I'm going to bring on Jordan Russell from RAACA to uh, tell us some important news. He's got something cool going on right now for U.S. ARC. Jordan, what's going on in the racket world? What's up, buddy? How you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, uh, just kicking off uh, another event and here to plug it. Nice, nice. Where are we? What, what's the what's the prize for people that buy tickets this time? Well, this one's a raffle, as you know, and probably a lot of your listeners do. We've been kind of rotating back and forth between doing doing auctions and raffles. And uh, this is our third raffle, and uh, this is something that a lot of people requested that we have runner-up prizes. So we switched it around, um, and this uh, this raffle has four different prizes. The first place winner gets a trip to Costa Rica for true. Uh, sorry, for two, uh, all expenses paid from anywhere in the U.S. to Costa Rica and back. It covers your hotel. It covers your transport once you're there, which would basically be taxis and buses going from one part of the country to the next to go herping, or if you'd like to go to a specific location to, say, dive. Um, it also That's includes awesome. $1,000 in cash, which is spending money for you, but it's also kind of meant to be an offset of, you know, I know there's there's people out there playing and they're giving their heart and soul uh, to the cause, and maybe they can't take a week off work to go to Costa Rica. So yeah. Costa Rica is a very inexpensive place to travel, especially when the hotels are covered and the travel is covered. So it's basically just food and and drinks. So we figured, mm-hmm. well, let's say somebody wins and they can't afford to take a week off work. Well, maybe offset that cost a little bit and give them 1000 bucks cash, and that way they can do something really fun without it putting any strain on their life. And if if you can afford to take a week off work, then great. You get more spending money on your trip, and it's win-win for everyone. Um, and we're trying what if to you organize... don't want to come back? <laughs> well, I hear they sell houses down there. 
everybody that I know that's gone says it's their favorite place they've ever been. Especially if you're yeah. an animal person, it's just a must-go-to place. Yes, I know. I have friends who've been there. That's that's an awesome, awesome first prize. Cool. What else you got? Yeah, and, and uh, Quetzal Wire is working with us. We're trying to get the dates worked out, um, but it looks like we should be able to have him do at least one day and night of a guided herp tour. So you'll be able to go down there, be in safe hands, and get go field herp in Costa Rica with somebody who knows it like the back of their hand, which is that in and of itself is almost a separate prize. Um, yeah. And then the, the, the runner-up prizes are not any, uh, anything to scoff at either. We have like a nice little Bowen ball python package for second place. Um, we have a donation from David Nguyen. And that's a female leopard boa that's possible head albino with a male hypoboa, 100% het leopard, possible head albino. And then from dino white, uh, white diamond reptiles, we have a female inchy firefly. So that all together wraps up as a second place prize. And then third place is a $500 gift certificate to Chippewa Reptile. And then fourth place is a $250 gift certificate towards rats and mice from the rodent barn. So it's kind of, uh, nice. even if you get fourth place, it's still not a half-bad prize. So, I mean, it's uh, the, the goal is to have everybody win something that we can possibly put out there to entice people to donate to USR. I mean, of, of course, we want people to win, want people to be happy and motivated and active in their community, but it really does boil down to getting dollars and cents funding for our lobbyist groups so that they can be as effective as we need them to be and expect them to be. So Absolutely. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's working well. It's a nice little incentive to reward ratio, um, you know, that uh, that's so far gone well. And then we're going to do the, a follow-up immediately after this is over with a, another smaller auction next month, um, which is going to be kind of a, a spin on what we normally do that we'll make an announcement for in a few weeks, um, not letting too many details out, but expect something different from what we normally do. Awesome. Okay, so when is the cutoff for this particular raffle? This raffle ends on Halloween. So uh, we're going to cut okay. that. We're going to do the drawing at 6.01. So I'll have my laptop there, and at 6 o'clock I'll cut off ticket sales to the program. And then at 6.01 I'll hit the button, and it automatically selects a winner. So I'm going to put a video nice. up because a couple people said they were disappointed there wasn't a video kind of anticlimactic because the program doesn't have any sort of big spinning Vegas style wheel of fortune things that you kind of would want to see. Uh, it just yeah. kind of says this is the ticket number and the name. But regardless, I know people want to see it, so we're going to videotape it this time so they can see uh, it says, you know, Barry, whatever, who, John, you know, whatever. So that way it's just kind of okay. there. And people, can, people can see for themselves. And, yeah, we're excited. I think this is... Uh, this is something that's kind of never been done before, and hopefully it's a success so we can follow it up with, the, with perhaps an even bigger trip next time. Yeah, that would be great. Well, I'll, I'll be sure to remind the listeners every week and fill that so uh, people don't forget about it. it. And, oh, absolutely. And, and Jordan, if you're free to pop in on in the Gecko Nation group, we have almost, uh, I think, almost 4,000 members now. If you want to post your updates oh, in here, nice. too, you're welcome to. So, Will do. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. And, and enjoy the rest absolutely. of the show. Thanks. And, oh, real quick, thank you very much for my uh, sailfin dragons. I'm loving them. They're awesome. Awesome. You enjoy those. I'm really enjoying mine. Hopefully uh, 
Hopefully it do real well for you. Cool, cool. All right, take All right. care. Good Thanks, buddy. Take raffle. care. Bye now. Thanks. Have a good show. All right. All right, folks, make sure you get your tickets, okay? It's, uh, that's a good one. Imagine getting away for a week to Costa Rica. I, I, I may not come back, but, I mean, I think I got to because I have all these geckos to take care of. Um, but, yeah, that's that's awesome prizes, up, up, you know, up to a fourth-place winner. So, um, yeah. Well, Tim, are you with us? I'm here. You've been awfully quiet tonight. Is everything okay? Uh, with uh, with all the stuff going on tonight, I'm just looking forward to uh, getting Ben on the air. All right. Well, go ahead. Why don't you introduce him, and we'll uh, get rocking and rolling here. Um, why don't we go ahead and bring Ben on and let him introduce himself? Uh, ben, sorry we uh, we kept you holding a little bit longer uh, than usual tonight, but um, go ahead and uh, and start off. Uh, you could talk about how how you uh, excuse me how your bleh, well, tongue-tied now. Uh, you're starting reptiles. <laughs> yep, Ben, you're sure. live on the air. All right, can you hear me? Absolutely, loud and clear. All right, good, good. Um, for me, my start in reptiles is back further than I can remember. It's just always been there. It's pretty similar with a lot of people that breed reptiles. I remember uh, when I was about 19 or so, I found a journal that my like second grade third grade teacher had me write and and we were supposed to write like half a page a day or something and there it was written out quite often about how I was going out and catching snakes and so it's just it's just kind of always been there I don't remember how it started <laughs> um, as far as breeding um, I started in 2002 uh, fall 2002 with a pair of boas and a pair of ball pythons were just completely normal and I'd always wanted to keep them and and uh, breed and stuff like that that's when I finally was able to and got a litter of 19 boas and a clutch of 8 ball python eggs with no slugs or anything all healthy babies that did great and sold fairly easily for me and I, I was off to the races after that that's awesome, and and that led to Australian addiction reptiles. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I had gone uh, for two years. I was in Alabama as a missionary. When I got back to where where I grew up was in northern Utah. Uh, the the little town I was in was Logan, Utah, and the pet smart had moved in while I was gone, and so the the local mom pop pet stores closed, and I couldn't get you know, feeders for my for my snakes anymore from there and uh someone at the Pet Smart was thankfully was willing to give me a number of someone there local that was selling rodents and that was Justin Julander and so I went to his house and saw a bunch more cool reptiles and I was getting rodents from him for a while and we ended up deciding to start buying projects. I think the very uh, the very first one we did was a pair of het pieds that we paid. I think we paid, was it two and a half or three thousand dollars, something like that. That was back in like oh four or oh three. I think it was oh three. So yeah, and that's how that kind of all started. We from those that pair of hets, we got three eggs the first time, and two out of the three eggs had pieds in there, and so we were once again 
very fortunate our first round with kind of more expensive stuff, and so we just started buying up a bunch more. <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, can you talk about your education and, and your degrees? Yeah, so I've always been, definitely been a, a book nerd. I, I love reading and learning, and um, as a high school student, I was really excited about doing something with herpetology, so I called the, the local college and just asked the biology department if they had a herpetologist there, and and thankfully there's someone patient enough. Now that I've been on the other side of that, I don't know that I would be as, as nice and patient and giving as, as the professor was to have <laughs> a couple of high school kids just pop in out of nowhere and poke around in the lab and ask questions, but uh, his name is Joe Mendelson, and he's now the curator of reptiles and amphibians at the Atlanta Zoo. Um, but yeah, he was super nice. The couple of grad students I met were really nice and encouraging, and so I majored in biology and then uh, decided as a grad student I was going to switch from biology to animal science to kind of <clears throat> do a little bit more applied kind of science, not not so much, you know, kind of broad, basic biology, but more applied. And uh, there I did a lot of reproductive biology, um, mostly with, you know, food animals. So uh, I did projects with cattle and pigs, and there were projects other people were doing with poultry and things like that. But I got to uh, teach or you know, as a grad student, so I was the TA for the breeding genetics course, so I got a lot of exposure to that and a lot of good ideas. People have been doing in other species for, for lots and lots of years and and uh, ended up, the, the few projects that I thought I was going to end up doing for my dissertation just didn't work out. And I think it was in 2009, like fall 2009 or sometime 2010, uh, I was at the Sutherlands for some reason. I don't even remember now, but they're the, the snake keeper. Uh, so they've produced a lot of ball pythons over the years. And I was, I was probably buying rodents again. That's my my main guess. I can never seem to produce <laughs> enough rodents. <laughs> no matter how many breeder bins I get, I guess whenever I get more rodents, then I just buy more snakes and just always <laughs> don't have enough. But anyway, so I was talking to them and realized that... Uh, Colette had been collecting an amazing amount of data, and it sounds like a few other breeders, Eugene Bissett and some others have done this as well, and I would love to have a chance to look at more people's data and potentially have publications. So if there's anyone you know, listening here that's got lots of breeding data over the years, I'd be very interested in talking with you. But with the Sutherlands, I mean, she had been... I think in the end, I don't remember for sure off the top of my head, but I think it was close to 10,000 eggs. Um, I mean, she had individual weights, length, widths. Uh, a lot of the time she had what order they hatched. So I knew, like, egg number one was the first one to hatch. So there's all kinds of different questions I could ask about the weight of the female, the age of the female, back-to-back -back years, uh Part of the time they're in California, the other part they're in Utah, so I was able to c compare their breeding results in the two different locations and just all kinds of questions I was able to to ask and, and uh, test with 
statistical significance to see if there's, you know, real answers to some of these questions that we think about. And so that actually ended up being my dissertation was work on breeding genetics in ball pythons. That's awesome. So you got to do your dis- dissertation on exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah, it was it was really cool that it worked out that way. I was uh, my um, department head was not happy at all about it, but uh, <laughs> thankfully we worked through it. They were not excited about having a dissertation come out of their department that was on snakes. <laughs> <laughs> and and do you think um, that's kind of due um, just because kind of financially they get a lot of their financial backing from you know like farms producing you know food animals yeah and that's i'm sure that's part of it they're certainly their reputation and you know what people expect from them is is pretty focused on agriculture so having something that in the united states we're not going to be eating or making very many leather products from them or anything like that they they weren't very excited about that but thankfully we made it happen anyway you snuck it through there. <laughs> yes. So every time I look at my dissertation and see his signature on the first page, I get a warm feeling inside. <laughs> I got a reptile thing through. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, and that's kind of a, a theme we, we've had going here for the last couple of weeks is, uh, you know, kind of uh, bringing our hobby and industry kind of more into the mainstream. And uh, that's a that's a perfect thing. And in, in your, I'm sure it wasn't a plan for you to to be a pioneer in, in something like that. But really, uh, you know, you you are. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about some terminology of uh, some genetic terminology um, in regards to reptiles, or or yeah. just genetics in in general? Yeah, one thing that I see, I mean, obviously, when we're, you know, talking on forums and Facebook and texting each other, stuff like that, it's all very informal, and and so, that, you know, even just spelling words and stuff like that, we're not worried about. Um, but I think sometimes us being lax in how we're talking about genetics sometimes makes it especially for people that are kind of new, makes it confusing to them to try to figure out what we're talking about. And probably one of the most common things that I see, and like I said, I don't know whether it's on purpose or not, um, but the the terms gene, allele, um, and trait, those three terms I see kind of used interchangeably, but they definitely mean different things. Um, so a gene is basically, you know, the DNA that, is packaged in chromosomes, so there's basically, you, you want to think about it just like a, a string. There's, in leopard geckos, I looked that up, since you guys do leopard gecko stuff, there's 19 pairs of chromosomes. So you have this DNA, and they're packaged in leopard geckos. There's 19 pairs of them. One, one set of 19 came from the mother, and one set of 19 came from the father. So they come together in packages, and those 19 packages we call chromosomes. But if you just think of that, each chromosome as being like a string. Um, that that string is made up of A's, T's, C's, and G's. 
And so that code makes a protein um, when it's a gene. So a gene is a spe specific part on that string. So if uh, the albino gene is on leopard gecko chromosome 3, then you can go on chromosome 3 specifically, and once you know exactly where it's at, the location or locus, um, you can actually sequence that gene and see exactly what what that gene does. So each gene is, uh, this is a little oversimplified, but the majority of the time each gene is going to make a protein, and that protein is going to have a function. So it's going to do something in your cells. And so the gene is a specific place, an allele is a specific sequence at that location, so for that gene. So you could have uh, an endless amount of different alleles for that specific locus or that place, that gene. So for, say, it's an albino gene um, and leopard geckos on chromosome 3, if you change an, uh, one of those A's, T's, C's, or G's, and it leads to a different protein being made, changes that, that protein a little bit, and it might change how the animal looks, and that's what the actual trait is. So a trait is what it looks like. A lot of the time people talk about, you know, the albino gene, you know, look how nice this albino gene or whatever. You're actually seeing the trait. You're not seeing the gene. So I think sometimes that's kind of confusing for people. Um, but but anyway, so that's that's kind of important to think about so the gene is a location on a chromosome where specific protein is made, and an allele is, is different alleles can be in that place, and each allele just has a different genetic code to it. And so, like with albinos, if it's a certain A, T, Cs, and Gs, then it will look normal, but if there's a mutation that causes that protein to not work, then it lacks pigment, you know, the black pigment, it becomes albino, so there actually could be multiple alleles at that gene that cause albinism, and we might not even be able to tell. But there can also be genes, other locations, that cause, and I think um, with leopard geckos, is there three different lines that you guys have of albino? Correct. Yeah, so those, you know, very easily could be in completely different locations, different chromosome and obviously there will be a different set of alleles that are present at that location or that gene in different individuals. So I know it's kind of it's kind of hard to learn these terms just by listening. It's a lot easier if I can draw pictures on the board, but but I hope that helps when you're when you're talking about it and thinking about it to know for sure what's being said, the difference between gene allele and trait. No, that's that's great. That's exactly uh, what I was hoping you you would explain. And um, do you now want to go on to modes of inheritance, or am I jumping ahead with that? Yeah, that's fine. Um, I, I think it'd be most interesting. You know, we talked a little bit before uh, through email about some of the questions um, with some of the genes. Uh, one that you brought up that I read a little bit about that was interesting was and. Uh, might be better for you to explain this than me since I only know a little bit. We were talking about uh, double recessive. It was patternless and albino, and that there Correct. was some trouble producing that at first. Yes, so so basically it, it's two uh, recessive traits, 
and uh, the you know the the first crosses were made, and then you have the double het offspring, and you know by the simple um, you know uh, genetic uh, ratio, they they should be um, a, a one in sixteen chance of producing the the double recessive offspring. So the the offspring showing the albino and the patternless traits, but it was not one in 16. It actually, um, you know, some, a couple of breeders that produced many, many of them said it, it was, it took hundreds and maybe even thousands uh, of offspring before the, the first one was born. Yeah. So that's very interesting. So my next question, and I haven't asked you this yet, I don't know the answer to this, but once they did get it, then was it very easy to make them? Yes, yes. Then they, then they, you know, produced, they reproduced themselves basically. But and and also, I believe it wasn't, and I'm not an expert on this, but I believe the rainwater albino strain was not too hard to make. But I believe it was mm-hmm. the bell and the tremper and. As I said, uh, I'm not an expert. Dave, do you know um, any any more on that than I do? Um, all I know is the uh, the bell is still the toughest one. So, um, yeah, we have the rainwater, we have the tremper. I don't know too much about the history as to you know how long it took, but I know the I know that um, um, they weren't easy to make. Yeah, I wish I had more information on that though for you guys. But but yes. Doc, you are you are correct that then once once we had it then it was then it reproduced. Um but but to get that first one, to get the yeah. the the first one, you know, with the showing the albino and the patternless took way longer uh, you, than the, the one in sixteen chance. Yep, yep. And do you know I'm likely you don't, but um it would be interesting to know if once they produced the albino patternless, if they took double heads from that and bred them together, and then that ratio changed to be better than one in sixteen, and my guess I, is that it probably would have. I don't. Do you happen to know if they tried that? No, I don't. But that's something uh, we could bring you back on in a, on a future show, and we'll we'll do some research on that. Yeah, because so what's what's happening? The the first thing that will pop in my mind with genetics background, if you have two different traits that you're you're breeding together, and you're getting very unexpected ratios, uh, so you know from several generations individually that they're obeying normal Mendelian modes of inheritance. One is, you know, they're both simple recessive, and it's very clear through many generations which sounds like these were like that. They were very well-established, well-understood. But then you breed them together and you get ratios that are completely unexpected. Uh, What that is, that's called linkage disequilibrium. And so what happens is, if you go back to what I was talking about earlier, where your your DNA, when when we think about, I think in general, when people think about breeding and getting half the DNA from the mom, half the DNA from the dad, I don't think that we're conceptualizing the fact that that DNA comes in packages. So these chromosomes, you're you're getting chromosome 3, you're getting one from your mom, one from the mom, one from the dad, and that's coming as a package. 
Now, one thing that happens in the cells when the gametes, the, the sperm and the eggs are being produced, uh, one thing that happens with those strings so that, you know, each one of these chromosomes, they're similar, very similar in in uh, sequence. And so sometimes they'll, those those strings will kind of be right by each other and parts that are homologous, similar, can actually cross over. So a lot of you have had, you know, high school biology, you learned about crossing over and meiosis and stuff like that. Um, so that is kind of a way to increase genetic diversity, genetic variation, because you can get crossing over events. But if you have two different genes that are on the same chromosome and they're very close together, then the likelihood of a crossing over event occurring between them to either separate them or um, if you have, you know, the albino gene from one parent on one chromosome 3 and then you have the patternless gene from the other parent on the other chromosome 3, to be able to get the, the double recessive, you need a crossing over event to occur between those two because otherwise, if they always stay on separate chromosomes, you're never going to get both of them because you can only give one chromosome from each parent. And so if, on the other hand, you have two different traits, which I'm sure there are examples of this. I know there are, you know, in pythons. I'm sure the majority of them in, in geckos are like this, where you have, you know, very normal ratios. If, if the albino gene is on chromosome 3 and the patternless gene is on chromosome 4, then you don't have to worry about that because you can get, chromosome 3 from mom and chromosome 4 from dad, or, yeah, so you, basically you can get, or the double heads, so, so from, from an adult that's a double head, you could get both of those mutated genes, because you would get chromosome 3 from that individual and chromosome 4 from that individual, and so that's what's happening in a normal two-gene cross where you're getting normal ratios or like if you had a double recessive where you do get that 1 in 16, that's because they're on separate chromosomes, and so you can get both of those mutated chromosomes, you know, they're separate, so you can get both of those in one gamete, but if both the genes are on the same chromosome and what the, the individual is a double head, so that means it's got on chromosome... Um, three, so both of these genes are on chromosome three. Um, one chromosome three is going to have patternless, and the other one is going to have albino. And so that individual that's a double head can only give one gene or the, one, you know, mutated gene or the other. It can't give both to the offspring. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. But it, the, so it basically, also... the only way you can get if there is this you know, linkage disequilibrium because they're located on the same chromosome, the only way you'll ever be able to get the double recessive is if there's a crossing over event between that individual's two chromosome threes and that crosses over between those two. So then that crossing over causes both mutated genes to be on the same chromosome. And then the other chromosome is completely normal. There's no mutated, for, it's not mutated for patternless or albino, and the other one has both. So that's why I was saying if you take, once you do have the double recessive animals and you make double heads, I bet that you're going to get, <laughs> you're going to have much better ratios. Um, it actually, 
I'd have to think about it, but you're probably going to be one in four because it, you then have both of those mutated genes on the same chromosome, and so they're always going to pass together. Yes, and it, but it also almost sounds like maybe it shouldn't have happened, like that it that it would would have been impossible to produce since they, you know, in in the way you just explained it. Yeah, it's it's decreases the likelihood the closer they are together. So if they're on the same chromosome but they're on totally separate opposite ends of the chromosome, then you might not even notice any disequilibrium at all. But if they're right by each other, then they're basically going to pass like a single, you know, chunk of DNA. It's basically passing like a single gene, and so you can't really get both mutated genes in that same spot. <laughs> And so yeah. since it took them hundreds or maybe even thousands, if we could ever get to a point, and that's an unfortunate thing about reptile genetics is there's just not money to figure out exactly where these genes are and what their sequences are. But if we get to a point where we can do that, then I would imagine we're going to find out that the albino and patternless are on the same chromosome and they're fairly close to each other. Yes, and that's so that interesting. And also, uh, hold on one second, Sam. That would be called the... Uh, uh, DNA PCR testing, right? If you were to actually uncode the, these uh, genetics, Dr. Morrell, is that correct? Sorry, say that again? Would that be called, if, like, you just said that it's uh, it hasn't been done yet because of money, but would that be called DNA PCR testing? Um, PCR would be a way that, uh, basically, if if I was on that project, uh, what I would do is um, you would basically need, I guess this is a better way to explain it. So what what you're basically doing when you're looking, if we wanted to find out those two specific traits, where they are and what their sequences are, uh, you would do what's called a QTL analysis. That's quantitative trait loci analysis. And so that's mostly done in flies where you have an extremely short generation interval. You can produce thousands of them in you know, a small lab. So you'd have to do a whole bunch of crosses and you figure out how far apart they are. And then also in the, in, you know, while you're doing that, you're going to be able to figure out other traits and other things that must be close to the, where those two genes are that you're interested in. And with most other model organisms, you know at least some sequence information, so at some point you can get close. Um, but anyway, once you kind of know where it is and what some of the sequence is around it, then you can go in with PCR, and that's polymerase chain reaction. Uh, you can go in with PCR and amplify up that specific part of the DNA. You design primers that basically it's kind of like um, deciding kind of crop an image. Uh, this is obviously simplifying things quite a bit, but if you crop an image to the specific part of the image you're interested in and then Xerox it, you know, copy it a whole bunch of times on a copy machine, uh, that's kind of what you're doing. And so basically you can go in and you can pick a specific part of the DNA you want to be able to focus on and know to the, you know, every single actual nucleotide, every A, T, C, and G, uh, you can get that information. Okay. Interesting. And, yeah. and Doc, uh, part of this, you know, back in the day, I, I believe the patternless 
and the Tremper albinos were the first, uh, were two of the first recessive traits um, that that popped up in leopard geckos. I guess the rainwater albino popped up first, but wasn't um, as widely uh, marketed or or enough numbers in the market for people to start trying the crosses. Um, so mm. I believe the the trempers and the and the Murphy patternless, you know, were really like one of the first you know double combos that were that were sought after and would have been worth a lot of money. So it was at the time it was kind of the race that everyone was trying to produce it, you know, and so that's yeah. why there there were probably thousands produced before the first one was was actually produced. Yeah, and see that's interesting too. If if it's difficult for all three of those albino genes, then most likely that's four different genes that are all on the same chromosome and they're fairly close to uh in you know, fairly close in proximity on that chromosome. But if you breed the two different albino two of the different albino lines together, you get normals, right? You're not gonna get an albino. Correct. All the all so three albino have. strains are are you know not compatible. Um, but yeah, so, I do believe so that the those are all separate locations. But if it's difficult to get those double recessives, that would if it's due to genetics, that would be wise because all four of those are on the same chromosome and they're fairly close to each other. So that's pretty interesting. But I I do believe that the rainwater albino patternless was easier. To okay. produce, I'm, I'm not. I couldn't attest to exactly what numbers, but um, I, I do believe it was easier to produce the the first one of those. Yeah, and there's if if you really wanted to nerd out on this, <laughs> um, there's probably pretty good information on the net uh, where you can actually use those crosses if you can get the actual numbers from the breeders, and you could calculate the distance between the genes. It's called I think the the unit of measure they use are called centimorgans. Uh, so you could basically take your, like if it was one in 1015, you could basically take that information, go on the net and figure out that equation to to translate that from, you know, the number of breedings to what you actually saw and be able to figure out how far apart those two genes are. That's uh, That's definitely a new one by me, yeah. Center Morgans, is that it? Center Morgans, kind of like centimeter, but it's Center Morgans. I think that it's a CM. It's, I think they call it uh, CM as well, but it's probably the lowercase or uppercase is probably different than for centimeters. But anyway, that's something that I haven't done <laughs> professionally. <so laughs> I, that's just remembering from teaching classes. I haven't actually used that equation, but, but you probably could do it. Um, the other thing to ask, which I would assume this wasn't the case since this would have been an obvious explanation. Um, but if you're seeing one in one in 16, I mean, you'd have to have pretty high numbers, but if you could see when you're breeding those double heads together that on average you're getting a few less fertile eggs, that's the other potential explanation, right, is that one in 16 eggs that was your double recessive is dying in the egg. And so it took several breedings, you know, hundreds or thousands, until for whatever reason one actually lived through it. So that's another potential explanation. 
Um, but if there was, you know, a higher proportion of eggs dying or single eggs being laid or something like, you know, somehow that that egg is aborting early or whatever, I would imagine the breeders with the kind of experience they had, they would have recognized that. Yeah, I, I so, did um, contact a, a, a one breeder uh, this week uh, trying to um, do a little research on this and and no, that was not something that he mentioned, and and that's also not something that I recall uh, reading or hearing about when uh, when people were were going hard trying to trying to chase down that albino patternless. Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Um, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, Dr. Mel, maybe we can talk a little bit about the three albino strains and. Not only about the fact that they're not compatible, but uh, like Tim had mentioned to you, we, we have a, a concern in the community about so-called uh, tainted lines, quote unquote, and um, how this could affect, you know, your breeding outcomes and basically, you know, the value of some of these uh, lines that we have been breeding for so long. So, um, you know, that's something that I'd like to get into. But we'll be right back. Oh, hang tight. Cool. Hang tight. We'll be uh, back in a couple minutes. Check out our sponsors. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types. From white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www. .rainbowmealworms.net Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making. Known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. You can now download his leopard gecko care app, his morph encyclopedia app called leopard gecko pro, and visit his site leopardgecko.com to see where morphs are made. Giantleopardgecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out giantleopardgecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, ABDragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. And folks, for uh, a standard 5% off discount with AB Dragons, use the code GECKO, all in caps, at checkout. 
And uh, we are back. And right before the show uh, took a break, we I asked uh, Dr. Mel a little bit about the albino strains. Let's uh, get a little more in-depth about that. All right. Dr. Mel, you with us? Yep. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I asked you about the albino strains and this issue that we have with so-called tainted lines. Um, you know, if a gecko has multiple albino strains in it somewhere, is that the end of the world genetically? Well, um, from, from you know, my, for me to answer that, I, I can't really answer that on my own. My first question to you would be is when, I mean, have people produced animals that are both, like, you know, it's both albinos being expressed, or if you Supposedly. take this, Okay, so you yeah. could take this one animal and breed it to an albino of two different strains and produce all albinos of the two different strains kind of a thing? Well, yes. And, for instance, like somebody would have, would recently say, just to give you an example, somebody spent some considerable money on uh, certain geckos that were thought to be um, bell albino only. And when they test bred that male bell albino to a female trimper albino, they produced albinos, and we're pretty upset about that. Um, so that's the situation we're encountering sometimes. Yeah. So I guess for me, I mean, just off the top of my head, with the information I have, uh, I wouldn't see any problem at all unless there's some kind of decreased physical, you know, trait, you know, if, if it makes it weaker or, you know, there's some some negative reason if you see decrease in, in fecundity, less eggs or more babies coming out weak and dying, anything like that, is there problems? Not that not that I'm aware of. I, I haven't heard of any uh issues like that, but it's just kind of like um purebred dogs, um, if we could use that uh as an example. Um, you know, you wouldn't want to go to a breeder and buy an expensive purebred dog and then start breeding it and find out that it's not, it doesn't have exactly the, the pure genetics that you, that you paid so much money for, um, if yeah. that makes sense. Sorry, I had a connection yeah. problem a minute ago, but yeah, that's, that's what it is. Okay. So what do you so think though? I mean, is there a way to get, get it out of there? Uh, yeah, you can certainly breed it out, and that's pretty easy to do with test crosses. Uh, obviously, you'd need, like in this case, what was the was it the Tremper line that they paid the money for? Um, they paid the extra money. Let's just say for the Bell albino line, and um, okay, the, the one gene that keeps that people are testing for mostly is uh, the Tremper albino. So basically, what they're doing is they're taking a a bell albino, uh, which is a bell albino eclipse, which is technically called a radar, and they're breeding a radar to a raptor, which is a tremper albino eclipse, and they're producing raptors, and they're getting upset over that. And, I mean, from a purity standpoint, I can definitely see why that would upset people. And we, you know, the serious, respectable breeders, we're always test breeding our lines to, to prove that they're pure. And uh, you know, right. to just do our best to statistically have the purest geckos. So, you know, but there are cases where people are indiscriminately mixing strains, and like people are buying geckos at reptile shows, 
thing, you know, and the sellers are saying, oh, yes, they're pure. There's no known hets in this line, yada, yada, whatever to sell the animal. And the people are thinking they're getting a high-end uh, pure gecko, and they're not. And they're finding that out by test breeding it. So. Okay. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of different from I don't know a whole lot about the, I think the, some of those albino candy, I don't, I don't know. I don't understand that too well, but it doesn't seem to be that people are worried about that. They'd probably be happy to find out it was for another one too, because then can make both kinds of albinos from one. But, <laughs> but yeah, if you're, if that's an important thing to have it be, be pure, yeah, the, the number one thing you do is have, you know, a female or two or albino for the one you want to test for, and to that, obviously, it's had half the babies are in a, in a you know, so so that's a pretty easy cross to do. Okay, Doc, yeah. um, I'd like I'd like you to talk a little bit now about um heritable her, heritable versus uh, non heritable traits. Yeah, so some of um, them, I think, I think most reptiles that are bred in captivity quite a bit um, that kind of pops up. People are familiar with is a paradox. People call a paradox. Um, so what you'll find in snakes and lizards, all of them that I have seen and, and know you know, what the parents were and what the offspring were from that individual, all that, um, you're not really going to be able to reproduce it. You basically have patches of one trait. You know, a lot of the time it's normal. And then patches of another trait, you know, albino or whatever, in the other one, or the other patches. <laughs> and so, basically, <coughs> that's, sorry, excuse me, got a little bit of a cough. <coughs> um, that's not a heritable trait, because what's happening there in that specific instance, and there are other things like this, but I just think this is probably the one most people are familiar with. Um, so what's happening is, Early on in in the embryo's development, so we start with a single cell that has half the DNA from mom, half the DNA from dad. You know, right after fertilization, that DNA mixes, and you basically have they call it a zygote, or it's a single cell, but that's the new baby, and that splits into two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two. You know, on like that until you have a baby hatching out with trillions of cells, um, but Somewhere along the way, what's happened with these paradox animals is one uh, one of the cells, it's going to be a single cell, one of those cells has a problem during uh, meios or mitosis, so basically when the cell, one, a single cell is splitting into two, where the chromosomes, something gets messed up with the chromosomes, and you either lose part of the chromosome, and sometimes you even lose the whole chromosome, and so every daughter cell, which that's just the term used for every cell that, that comes from that one cell. So you could say this is at the 64 cell stage. So 63 of the 64 cells are completely normal, but that one other one has some chromosomal abnormality. So there's some problem on one of those chromosomes where part of it got kicked off or something like that. And like I said, sometimes they'll even lose a whole chromosome. It won't go to the next daughter cells that come from that cell. And so if that happens to be where your albino gene is or something like that, 
um, what can happen is, say, it's a head albino bred to an albino. Um, so the rest of the cells, uh, let's say they all were supposed to be um, normal. So this, this baby would have been head albino and looked normal. But what happens is on that one where you lost um, you lost part of the chromosome, and we'd say that that part of that chromosome was, would have been your het gene, so your wild type, I mean, your wild type gene to make it look like a het, that part got cut off of one of the two chromosomes. The, one, the other chromosome went through normal, and that's the albino one. And so, anyway, that 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 uh, embryo keeps dividing. So 64, 132, just keeps dividing, dividing until you have this baby hatch out. And so you have a patch or patches uh, where it looks albino. So the reason why that would happen, all of it looks normal, you know, wild-type look, because so, it's majority of that animal's head. Um, but the reason why patches of it have albino is because there is no normal gene there to mask albino because that little part of the chromosome or that whole chromosome didn't come through in that one cell. And every cell that divided from that ever after had that chromosomal problem. And what happens with albino, we always think for simple recessives, you have to have two mutated alleles, right? You have to have both of, you know, both the alleles for it have to be mutated alleles to see albino, but really what you have to have to see albino is no normal alleles. And so if you only have one chromosome there with that gene and it's a mutated one, it's going to look exactly the same as if you had two mutated alleles because there's no normal there to make the normal protein and make it look normal. And so that's how you get a paradox. And so that's why you can't really breed for it because it's not because of some, you know, A, T, C, or D getting mutated and making a different protein, it's because of a problem during mitosis where your chromosomes got messed up, and so that one cell, all of the daughter cells from that had that problem. And then sometimes that will happen to cells that are then migrating, and so you can get patches of different parts of the body because from that one cell you have daughter cells going different places in the body you have patches in different places that are a different trait. And so that's a pretty interesting example of a trait that's not heritable. Yeah, that is fascinating. We see a lot of that, these uh, paradox animals. What about just regular little paradox spotting that you will see sometimes? We we have, like, uh, not so much with albinos, but with, with uh, some of the traits, um, we'll, we'll see... Uh, these random little black spots, does that, or, or dark brown spots, uh, is, yeah, is that the same type of paradox? It it can it could be. So the the earlier in embryonic development that that problem occurs, the more of the body is going to have those cells that are missing a chromosome or part of a chromosome. The later on, if it happened not long before, you know, it basically has a full body formed, then, then yeah, it would only be a few cells um, or, you know, for you to actually see it. That's still millions of cells. But 
it wouldn't have been during really early embryonic development. It would have been later in embryonic development. Um, another thing that can happen too, which I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't seen any good examples of this in reptiles. Um, I, I haven't necessarily looked really hard, but another thing that can happen and give you that different look is um, called a mosaic. And actually, I guess that's that's what I was describing. Mostly, it was a, a mosaic. Um, you can also get chimeras. And so chimeras are when you have two embryos that actually fuse together. And so in that case, that could be like your your um, albino and, and normal head. Um, you could have two embryos early in embryonic development actually fuse together, and then you can get patches. Um, you would get kind of a similar phenotype. But that's also not due to genetics. That's due to just something weird going on during embryonic development. Um, then there's something called somatic mutations. And so that could be, uh, and that's something I've never done any research on or whatever, but that could be what you're talking about with these brown and black spots. Um, that's something that's happening in in just a small spot, uh, you know, a small part of the animal that is different than the rest of the animal. That Those cells have once again, it could be a chromosomal abnormality or it could be the DNA is packaged differently than other places. And so the kind of the the machinery, the, the proteins that need to get there to make the protein from that gene can't get there. And so because it's packaged abnormally, so it could be the DNA is there, but it can't be accessed to make a protein. So that in that case, it would be changing the gene expression of those cells, even though the DNA is there, they can't express that protein. So there are a lot of different things that can lead to those those kinds of traits, you know, that we're talking about. Um, but but they all are they are all examples of traits that are not heritable. And okay. and the chimera is that is that one that the uh, example of it could be both a male and a female. Yes, yes. So they could have cells that are are male and cells that are female. That's that's definitely possible. And uh, I remember I had a friend that ended up going into um, human reproductive, so working in like an IVF clinic. Uh, I remember one of the papers he was reading about and talking about actually could see in, in women sometimes if they have a male son, they're able to find cells in her body, in like her organs or whatever, that are male cells because she had a son, and some of those cells actually end up becoming part of her body. So she's actually, in that case, um, I guess that's a, a type of chimera, but but it's uh, you know different than <laughs> than embryonic <laughs> ones. But yeah, weird stuff definitely can happen. That explains yeah, a lot about my mom. <laughs> okay, so next uh let's talk a little bit about um the enigma, enigma morph and the enigma mm -hmm. syndrome that went with it. I've I've said before, Doc, that I'm kind of surprised with all of the crazy morphs that are that are out there in all reptiles and, and also on top of that 
how we cross these different morphs together to make combo morphs, I'm surprised that there aren't more that uh, have problems, you know, that, that yeah. don't eat well or, or that don't reproduce well or um, or that have things like the Enigma syndrome, um, as we call it. Um, are, how do you how do you feel about those comments? First of all, um, with the I, with Dr. Mendelson, the first you know, person that I really worked with in college, he was, a lot of his background was in in uh, evolutionary biology. So I have a lot of evolutionary biology experience as well. Um, the way that that I would look at these mutations. Uh, is different than sometimes I see them talked very negatively. You know, since it won't survive in the wild, you shouldn't keep them, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, Basically, what these mutations are is uh, a natural random way for sexually reproducing organisms to be able to test a new idea or test a different idea. It might be something that worked in an environment, you know, 100,000 years ago, but got wiped out uh, as a trait that's actually expressed, but we still have, you know, some of those alleles that can lead to that, you know, simple recessive could lead to that sometimes, but if it's in an environment where it's not favored, those animals get killed right away. But then when the environment changes, you know, 200,000 years later, where that's favored again, then all of a sudden that mutation is very valuable and it could quickly, within a few generations, spread and become a significant part of the population. And so I wouldn't necessarily suggest people think about mutations as negative or as not being natural. That's not the way you should think about it, I, in my philosophy anyway. <laughs> so it's it's just a, a natural, random way for sexually reproducing animals to test different ideas, test something that, you know, Right now, maybe, or for the last 50,000 years, maybe it didn't work, but now, in the environment now, is this something that's going to give me and my offspring? Obviously, this isn't something any organism thinks about. I'm anthropomorphizing, but but basically, that's what it is. It's a a test for that that lineage, and it's random. These mutations uh, pop up randomly. Like I said, it could be that, uh, that it just stayed in the gene pool from, you know, for thousands of years and just stayed there. Whenever a homozygous one was born, it died right away, but there's enough of them as heterozygous animals that did well that it stayed in the gene pool. Um, And a good example of that is, like, with uh, malaria resistance. If you're heterozygous, there's a sickle cell anemia. If you're heterozygous for sickle cell, that actually helps you uh, gives you a better chance of of being able to survive getting malaria, and so hets are actually favored over someone with sickle cell or someone that's normal, and so that sickle cell anemia gene, you know, that allele for sickle cell anemia stayed in the population because as a het, it was actually favored above either homozygous one in a in a place where there's a lot of malaria. And so that's why it stayed in the population. So anyway, so that I, I, it bothers me when people, because I've heard people talk very negatively about morphs and that kind of stuff, and I, I just don't see any reason to think about it that way. Um, a lot of the time, a mutation will 
kill the embryo, and the majority of the time, if it's a lethal mutation, you're not even going to know about it as a breeder because it's not even going to be born. And so something like the Enigma, which, like we talked about in the email, sounds a lot like spider ball pythons and, and jaguar carpet pythons. Um, there's also, someone was, I saw a Facebook post, there's a, a horse breed that's similar to that, and I had a friend that did a lot of poultry research, and I actually talked to him because about the jaguar gene and, and carpet pythons. And so it's very well understood in chickens. And there are specific genes they know if there are certain mutations, it will it will cause... So what's happening is the, the cells that are migrating from the neural crest during embryonic development uh, are... Those cells are important for neurological function, but a lot of the time they're melanocytes that are kind of migrating that same way. And so I don't know for sure uh, about the enigma versus the normal. You guys will have to tell me if this fits. But at least with jaguars and spiders, what you're doing is you're reducing the dark pigmentation and you're also changing the pattern. And so what's happening is not only are you changing where the dark, those melanocytes, the darker pigments are going, at the same time you're also changing where the, the neurological, you know, the neurons are going. And that's why you can't really breed it out, at least with spiders and, and jags, you can't really breed it out because the reason why you're seeing that pattern and color difference is because those cells are migrating differently and that's also leading to the, the neurological network being different. So is that similar with the enigmas? Are you seeing reduction in dark pigment and then a change in, in pattern? Yeah, I, I would yes. yeah, I would say you're you're right on with it. Um Dave, you go ahead, so, you have more experience with them than I do. Um yeah, it it changes a lot. Uh it also gives some eye pigmentation. Um we see different degrees of it. Some people have been, have said that uh they're able to breed uh strong enigmas. Um, I've had some success outcrossing to wild-type bloodlines uh, just to increase overall vigor, but I think that's just strengthening the original line, and I don't really think it's affecting uh, how the Enigma gene works. But, yeah, we we see just the the pattern is greatly reduced and very uh, unpredictable, and the color, uh, the dark pigment, is greatly reduced. So... Yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, their heads, their heads spin. They they have all kinds of crazy uh, issues when it's really bad. Yeah, that's sad. Yeah, for for me, I've produced lots of spiders and lots of jags, and I've had many of them be completely normal. Um, I I remember a few instances that I've experienced, and I know one for sure with Justin was a huge difference where. He had a jag that was two or three years old and had been perfect, and he took it for two or three days. He did, it was like a the animal days uh, for local, kind of like a local fair thing. And after, after that, you know, that stress just kicked it off, and ever after that it had the, the neuro thing going on. And so the, the little bit I did read about the enigma, it sounds like that's similar too. Sometimes you'll have them acting yep. normal and then they get stressed somehow they get shipped to someone and they were completely yep, normal with you but then they get shipped to them and they think you're lying to them but I mean really that's oh, yeah. all that it needed to kick that off is that stress unfortunately yeah that happens quite often 
So there's yeah, and, nothing, and, uh, nothing we can do about it then. There's no way to 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 increase the chances of producing a better quality enigmas. There's no way to breed that that function out. Absolutely not, huh? Um just because so many people have been breeding so many spiders and so many jags and because of the very high amount of knowledge they have in chickens and what's going on there, I would say that uh, it's not worth putting a lot of effort into. Of course, me, myself, if I hatch out five spiders and I want to keep one back, if you know one is super, super loopy, then obviously I'm not going to keep that one. I don't know how much that's going to help, you know, the the major or the the proportion of your animals that seem to do fine as long as they're not stressed. <laughs> um, I don't know if if you can kind of up that a little bit. It might be something where if you're line breeding for the most hardy, which I would imagine everyone is, um, maybe that will help a little bit. But I, I would be surprised if you could ever get to a point where I breed this male to five females, and all of the animals I get are perfectly fine. I ship them to people, and they're perfectly fine. They have babies, and they're perfectly fine. I don't think it's ever going to get to that point. Okay. All right. Um, On a different topic, it's something that happens with some frequency but is kind of rare with leopard geckos is an effect where the tail is curled. Um, it's, It's actually got, like, a curly tail, something you would see, like, uh, like a pig would have, or you know, some dog breeds have a tail that curls. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, a lot of people call this an, a defect, and I tend to not only appreciate but also subscribe to your theory that sometimes these these traits that we see are, uh, you know, could possibly be, you know, for lack of a better word, stages in in not. I don't know, evolution is the right term, but uh, traits that would have normally been okay in an, in an environment, it's just being tested to see if it'll work, to see if it'll survive. But what would you say to an animal, uh, to a leopard gecko that uh, hatches out with a curly tail? And not only some tails are obviously just plain deformities, but then we have these other ones that actually have a very geometrical curl to them, kind of like a uh, like a spiral. And uh, we see spirals in all different types of uh, things in the universe going as, as big as galaxies. And it, it just fascinates me when these come out. And I really like the curly tails. And some people have really come down hard on me about even just wanting to figure out what's going on with them. But with your expertise, um, what do you think could be happening with that? Um, have people bred them enough? That it, I mean, does it seem like it's a single gene, you know, simple recessive or some kind of dominant, anything like that, or is it just kind of it randomly pops up sometimes? I think it I think it randomly pops up in my own experience from breeding them together. Uh, here, there seems to be some kind of a line bred effect to it because this generation I produced some that are showing curls to their tails as well. Interesting. Yeah, for me personally as a breeder, um, I would breed them for a few years and take data, I mean, at least three or four seasons, take data, and if it looks like gain weight similar, they poop similar, they shed similar, they breed similar, I mean, that's all I would need. I'm, I'm happy with it. <laughs> if 
I if I like it, I think it's it looks cool, it's interesting and different, and it doesn't seem to decrease the quality of life for those animals. Then I mean, to me, I, I wouldn't yeah. worry about it at all. I I think that a lot of the time people kind of have this. I don't know. It's it's kind of like they are worried about them getting released in the wild or that these are different from wild ones or whatever. But, I mean, as soon as you take an animal out of the wild and make a reproductive choice for it, it's no longer a wild animal, you know. <laughs> Any of those offspring never would have been born with those genetics unless a, a person made that decision. You know, it's not natural. And so right. I I have a hard time getting too worried or worked up. I think it's very cool people that work with pure lines and localities and and take data. I I respect that. That's cool. But at the same time, I would never talk down to people that do things differently because unless your goal is to repopulate a wild population, then there's no reason to be too worked up about that. These are animals in captivity that are basically we're we're putting selective pressures on them. And as long as the selective pressure, for me, ethically, as a breeder, if my selective pressures are producing babies that have a lower quality of life, then no, that's bad. But if their quality right. of life is similar, I wouldn't worry about it. The The first question I would ask, obviously, tails are important in geckos for, for nutrition storage. Is there a difference in, like, the fatness of the tail or anything like that? Not really, no. In fact, uh, they actually, oddly enough, the tail... Um, especially in the males, I've seen them during copulation. They've been able to really wind it around the female's tail, like and hold on. It's almost. I'm not going to go far as to say it's prehensile, but it it seems that if I, if I were looking at it from a evolutionary standpoint, to me it seems like well, what if this could be the first stage in the evolution of some type of uh, prehensile tail, and or or a tail that's just a little bit more functional. So basically yeah, an interesting cool. advantage. An interesting yeah. advantage, exactly. <laughs> so but so, so what I I haven't really gotten attacks from people thinking that uh you know it it's uh detrimental to the health because it isn't. I it's more or less uh you know, uh, professional uh, like scrutiny from other breeders that are you know, use it as a way to make me look stupid or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it isn't something that yeah, I can't and, and what I would do if I was in your shoes, I would I would just put together, uh, you know, some data. Say these are my group that I bred, you know, curly tail trait, whatever. And here's all the rest of my geckos. Here's my, you know, my fecundity per female. You know, how many eggs I'm getting, how many eggs died, how many of the babies, you know, died or whatever. And it, maybe something else would be interesting would be weight at a year or six months. I don't know enough about leopard geckos to tell you what kind of measurements would be interesting, but. If you can show them, you know, here's my curly tail group and here's all my others and all of those physical traits that are important to a good, happy, healthy life for the gecko or similar, then they basically have no leg to stand on. I think this would be a good time for you to talk about some of the uh, data that the Sutherlands were collecting um that you know, give some examples of of some of that data. Yeah. So the the kind of difficult thing from a breeding genetics, uh, more than likely, the majority of people 
won't have had is it's not really a topic covered in general biology and things like that. You kind of have to go more into like an agricultural department or something like that to get breeding genetics. But um, from like a, a breeding genetic standpoint, um, one of the most important things to know is what traits are heritable. So if we're selecting, so this is, I guess this whole conversation is going to move away from morphs. This is going to focus on production. So basically you want to focus, you have enough animals that it's worthwhile to you to focus on improving your efficiency. So for however many males and females you have, you want to maximize the amount of reproductive output you can get. And so you want to know, like, the age that you first, re you know, breed a female. So if if the females that breed earlier end up having, you know, less eggs per year their whole lives, then that obviously would be detrimental. Um, but if that's not heritable, then it doesn't matter. That's not really something that, that matters because... You know, you can't really select for that. Um, if there's problems with egg binding, then that's a good thing to find out whether that's heritable or not. So you obviously want to select away from that, but sometimes it's not heritable at all. And so if you spend time focusing on selecting, you know, on getting rid of that, if it's not heritable, then it doesn't really matter <laughs> because it, your, your selection against that, you know, getting that out of your collection isn't going to happen because it's not heritable. So... Um, the, in pythons, clutch size, but I guess with the geckos, it'd be, you know, how many clutches per year. That obviously is directly has to do with if you have females that, that on average are going to lay more eggs per year. Um, if you find out that's a heritable trait, then obviously that's something you want to select for, but it might be that it's not heritable. So some things... Um, they're called permanent environmental effects. Um, so those had to do with when the eggs were laid, like if they were, if there wasn't enough moisture or there's too much or something happened during to the mom even while she was, uh, you know, before she ovulated and laid the eggs. Sometimes you can find environmental factors that will increase or decrease that those babies, the whole rest of their lives, will affect their reproductive output. This obviously, I mean, you have to have hundreds, most of the time you have to have thousands of data points to be able to find out which of these traits matter and which of them are heritable so that you can then come up with, I've seen some breeding, um, I guess their breeding plan for something like for beef cattle or something like that. I mean, they can have 16 or 18 different traits and they have different weights and which ones are important to select for or whatever. And so it's a very precise, scientifically backed uh, plan to optimize your reproductive output. Those the people that raise the beef cattle, their their profit margin is so small that they have to be very careful Otherwise, they're not going to be able to put food on the table for their family. And so when there are these big companies that have the resources to do this research, uh, one example was uh, there's a kind of a co-op of people that bred turkeys in the state of Utah. And so I talked to the, the scientist that basically they as a co-op hired him, and he had a very specific, he showed me a graph, you know, every single female turkey, this is the exact amount of weight we want to see her gain. 
from when she's born until when she starts laying. And if she gains weight just like this, then we have the statistics and, and background to show that that will lead her to be the most reproductively, you know, successful, efficient. Um, they they have these little tags on the the birds, and so when they walk up to a feeder, the feeder reads that tag and dispenses the amount of food that animal needs. And so she eats it, she's done. And so when different ones walk up, it'll read and say a different, you know, it's a different animal. That one needs this much. It'll dispense that much. They eat it. And so it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So you can actually do quite a bit. On a small level, once you know what traits are heritable, you can kind of, you know, do some of that as a smaller breeder. But a lot of that um, research and application for that is really helpful if you're producing hundreds or thousands of animals every year because that will significantly increase if you keep your breeding set, you know, breeding number of breeders the same, it'll increase the number of babies you're producing. Or if you want to keep the number of babies you're producing the same, you can decrease the number of breeders that you have, so that's less feed costs and stuff like that. That that's very interesting, and that's one of the things why I was really looking forward to having you on tonight is to kind of get some of our listeners thinking about uh, selectively breeding for other things other than just color. Um, or size. Yep. Um, yep. The the worst thing you can do, and if you ever do take a breeding genetic class, the the worst thing you can ever do is focus on one trait <laughs> or on one thing. If you're only thinking about pattern and color, you're going to end up having problems. You're going to end up having to outcross five or ten years later because you're going to have a bunch of problems pop up. You really have to think about it outside of just color and pattern. That's going to make a huge difference on how successful you'll be. Um, you can still, if you have the newest, greatest morphs all the time coming through and, and they're coming from different people, so you have some genetic diversity that way, you might be able to skate by for a while. But, yeah, if you're only focusing on color and pattern, eventually you're going to have problems. We certainly and, see that. We see, uh, we see lines degrading all the time. Um, they look great, and uh, they're just not viable. They don't produce a lot of good eggs, or they're just weak. You can just, they kind of even feel limp in your hand, almost. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and so one of the best things you can do, and they they do this purposely, and I know in pigs production, I think they do with a lot of the poultry production, but they'll actually have a line that they breed for the males and a line that they breed for the females. And so basically in that line, they're going to just not use, like in the in the male line, any females that are produced, they won't use them for reproduction. And any in the male line, any females that are produced, they won't use for production. So they have these two basically genetically different lines. They're only going to keep males from one line. They're only going to keep females from the other line. And then for the pigs that they're producing to actually raise quickly and sell for meat, they'll cross those two lines. And so they have to optimize the hybrid figure that they'll get in their actual product. And so that makes it so they'll they'll be much more feed efficient, they'll get the size quicker, all that kind of stuff. Now obviously with, you know, pet geckos or snakes or whatever, we probably won't take it to that to that point necessarily, but if you make it a point every year to take one male from your line and breed it to something completely unrelated, 
and make sure you keep some of those babies, pets or, or whatever, you know, keep some of those back to, to breed in. So every year you're getting at least some, you know, hybrid vigor added in. You're basically either in inbreeding and causing problems or you're or you're outbreeding and, and getting hybrid vigor. It's rare that you can just kinda stay the same. And so if you're not taking steps to put some hybrid vigor into your collection or genetic variation into your collection, then you are inbreeding and, and eventually it's gonna be a problem. Yeah. And uh and you wanna talk about your uh your good uh quote of inbreeding versus line breeding? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that was from that breeding genetics class. I had a, a student who was a I mean, he was definitely as, as ranch or farm boy as they come. Awesome awesome uh accent and everything. He said well, I was always told if if it works it's line breeding, if it don't work it's inbreeding. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty hilarious. <laughs> that sums it up. So yeah, it is it is good to line breed, especially if you're trying to produce double recessive kind of things, but gotta make sure that you're getting some, some new blood in there too, otherwise it's gonna cause you problems. Yeah. It can be a problem though, especially if you're working on uh you know, we see we've heard some breeders say that especially with leopard geckos, that it's okay to to do extensive lion breeding, that in the wild uh, they're actually isolated in a lot of instances and they actually inbreed themselves uh, quite often. Yeah. And uh, But, I mean, I, I, there's too much of anything. It's no good. So Right, yeah. Think, it's, it's certainly fine to do that some. It seems that the, the reptile species that I've worked with which obviously is mostly pythons, but friends that have geckos and things like that, seems like it's better, you're less likely to have inbreeding problems with reptile species than with, like, dogs and, you know, other mammalian species. So we do have a little more latitude, and it and that very well could be, I haven't ever read up on literature about that happening in the wild, but it certainly could be that it happens more in the wild, too. But, yeah, if that's all you're doing is lion breeding, then... Yeah, you're you're going to hit a wall at some point, <laughs> and it's not going to be good for you and, and your customers. How how many generations do you think would be is is okay, and at what point is it too much? I mean, how do you when do you say when? I mean, you, you don't wait for something bad to happen, obviously. But uh, yeah, for, yeah, for, I, for me personally, I only go I only go two generations or three at the most. Yeah, for me personally. Um, obviously, there's going to be some difference between species. Certainly, you know, between a python species and a gecko species, I wouldn't expect them to necessarily act the same. Um, but for me personally, I I have absolutely no problem doing a generation or two. You know, breeding a, a male back to its mom that you know comes out with multiple traits from bringing the mom to dad, and then I want to bring him back to the mom to get, you know, a homozygous form of one of the traits that she had or whatever, then that's definitely mm-hmm. fine. And I might even do, you know, one more generation. So I've definitely done uh, two generations several times, but doing three would be rare, and I'd have to really think about it if I've ever actually done that. I, I kind of don't think that I have. I would worry about that some. Um, pretty much all of the simple recessive projects we've ever worked with, we've brought in animals 
completely, you know, as completely unrelated as you can get. Um, but, you know, from totally different breeders that have done at least some breeding with it, with their own breeding group or whatever. Um, I, I always, if I'm going to work on a simple recessive project, I want to have, I want to have genetics, not, not necessarily the morph itself, but all the other genetics that come with the animal I'm buying for reproduction and, and, you know, immune response and stuff like that, stuff that's important for that animal to be happy and healthy. Um, I want those genetics to be from different sources. I don't want to start a recessive project from one animal. That's not really a great idea. <laughs> if you breed it to three completely normal females and then, you know, kind of interbreed between them, then maybe you're okay. But, but I, I prefer to have, you know, I might start with one male that's homozygous for a recessive trait but then two or three years down the road, I'll either trade for someone else's female or male or whatever, but I'll, I'll almost always within two or three years, I'm going to have at least two or three different backgrounds. It's it's the same morph, but I want to have the other genes from different places and different outcrossings and stuff like that. When, when well, I hear this conversation come up, I always think of um, introduced species. Um, so, for instance, uh, you know, like I, I work in New York City, so when I see mice and rats running around, I think about you know like how many of those mice or rats you know were actually you know the initial population you know how many did that initial population make and you know now there are millions or, or trillions of them around yeah. and it's like and they're obviously doing very well. Um, <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> So it worked for them, or uh, you know, like you go to the the any Caribbean islands, and there are house geckos introduced everywhere, and um, and you know, and, and even in the United States, and it's like they descended from, you know, maybe there were a few brought there, and they obviously are, are doing quite fine. So it's uh, yeah. you can see the the argument both ways, and and a, a gecko that Dave and I have both worked with. Um, it's a, a velvet gecko from Australia um, that has a, an amelanistic form. Uh, that's a re- simple recessive trait. And uh, when I first got them, my first thing was exactly as you were explaining, Doc. Um, I wanted to get some genetics from different breeders in the U.S. to outbreed um, the the first ones that I was going to be breeding and producing. And um, I wasn't able to to find any normals um, at the time when I was purchasing my initial stock. So I ended up with just uh, a couple from a, a couple different breeders, but certainly they were related because they were that simple recessive morph. Plus, they're an Australian gecko, so you know that you know it's not like we're importing thousands of them from the wild. Um, and uh, and then they. So I was unable, really, to outbreed them, but they just produce yeah. very strong, viable offspring generation after generation. And I only worked with them for a couple of years, but I just thought it was so interesting. You know, here I was thinking that they were going to be um, very inbred, and they turned out to be very, very hardy uh, captives. Um, John uh, Scarborough did get uh, some from me, and, and he did produce one kind of dwarf like uh offspring but um but he had very similar experience that they're 
very hardy captives, very easy to care for, and and very strong genetically um, when they've certainly come from a very small gene pool. That's interesting. Um, there's a there's a morph we have. Well, I don't know if you call it color morph. It's a line bread effect. Um, basically, unlike with ball pythons, you guys have a uh, a melanistic trait like the super cinnamon or the super black pastel. In leopard geckos, we don't have that. They don't have a true melanistic gene to work with yet. Um, so a lot of people have been line breeding for dark geckos, and one of them are these really cool. Uh, uh, what are they? The black, the black knights uh, from Europe. They're really dark. They're, they're not completely black, but they're they're pretty darn close. But they've been line bred for 15 generations, and uh, in order to keep that look going, you have to continually you have to keep line breeding. It's not like you can really outcross them without losing that that darkness. So, in that case, um, I mean, is is that bad? Is that ex- is that excessive? what kept me from getting involved in them yeah and i mean i'm i am i realize i'm kind of a nerd about this kind of stuff a lot of people don't don't want to take the time or whatever but i mean i what i would be doing is just comparing generations and seeing you know if it one of the first things if you're having inbreeding problems one of the first things you'll see is a decrease in reproductive efficiency so you'll see less eggs or you'll see more more of the eggs that are laid crash or you'll see more more babies. I mean those are the three things I'd probably look for the most is less eggs per year, um, more more uh, eggs crashing while they're going and then more babies that are weak or dead in the egg or whatever. But I mean not seeing any of those things, you know, I shouldn't I I wouldn't worry about it too much. Um if you go like one of the big mouse, you know, rodent since I'm in science. I, you know, I've ordered lab rats, lab mice, stuff like that. If you go there and look, they'll have inbred lines and out lines. And if you compare litter size <laughs> between the inbred lines and outbred lines, the inbred lines are always way lower. I mean, sometimes a fourth of what the outbred lines are. So even though they are hardy lines that they keep getting babies from, you still aren't going to get 15 babies from an inbred line. You're going to get five you know, or ten or something like that. Um, so okay. if if the the quality, if all it is that you're seeing is a decrease in the number of eggs being laid, uh, but you the actual animals that are hatching out are just as hardy. They're, you know, growing. Like, that's another thing you could look at is their weight at three months or six months or whatever you think is most helpful. Um, And just see, I mean, if they're growing similar, pooping similar, breeding similar, then, yeah, I I wouldn't worry about it too much. But at the same time, because of the way I am, I still would always have a new... I would be watching for people other places that have babies hatch out that are kind of dark. And if it's not as nice as my, you know, really dark line, I would still try to bring in completely unrelated animals. And especially if you're line breeding, that could help improve your rate, you know, of producing really dark animals by bringing in the it's basic, if you're line breeding for a trait, that's a polymorphic trait. So that's, there's multiple genes that affect that one trait. 
And so getting unrelated lines that have, even if they're not as dark, but if they're showing some of that trait, it could be that they have different genetics that's causing that, and you put that into your dark trait, that could make yours. So instead of having three-fourths of the babies hatch out being, you know, nice and dark, you might move closer to all of them being nice and dark or whatever. It could improve uh-huh. your, your rate as well. But, yeah, if I was doing that, uh, every year I would be watching for two or three or four or five, you know, that I could bring in and breed and put into that so I have completely unrelated blood coming in. But, yeah, that the main thing would be just the quality of life of the offspring. If you don't see that decreasing significantly, then ethically I, I certainly wouldn't worry about it. Okay. Um, Dr. Merrill, would you like to go into a little bit of overtime with us tonight? That's fine with me. <laughs> Okay, cool. Maybe we can do like an extra half hour if that's all right with you. That would work for me. Awesome. Okay, folks, if you guys want to hear the the last half hour of the show, you're going to have to call in because the live portion will cut off. So to call in and listen, uh, call in to 646-478-5331. All right? And uh, if, you, if you can't call in, you can always catch the rest by downloading the show. So we're just going to keep rocking and rolling here. Um, I have another question that I think is pretty interesting. Um, you know, we, we basically wait around, or some of us get lucky for these random genes to or and traits to, to show up, and, you know, somebody will hatch out something weird, and we'll all get excited and wait for the next few years to see if it's reproducible. Is there any way to, uh, using outside stimuli of some kind, to, is there any way to make some of these genes uh, express themselves, whether it's by uh, temperature fluctuations of the eggs at a certain critical time in the development or maybe perhaps by hormones or chemicals or something. Is there anything that we can do? Um, the the first thing that pops into my mind, which um, this could go into you know part of our conversation we had earlier of traits that are not heritable, um, so there there are environmental things that you can do to cause uh, a trait change. But when you do it that way, you just have to keep in mind that it's not heritable. So if you, like the example that comes to my mind, since my my breeding is, pretty, is almost completely in pythons, um, we don't know, I don't know anyway, I don't think anyone's taking the time to figure it out, but if we increase the incubation temperature at some point during incubation with artificial incubation, um, we'll get some really weird striping, and it looks really cool, um, but, yeah, it's it's never been heritable. Um, the, the people that hatch these out, really, really cool looking, very different, um, but, yeah, it's, it's not heritable at all. And I guess someone could set up an experiment, I've actually kind of toyed with the idea of doing it, but the the bad side to it is sometimes when you have those higher incubation temperatures, you get kinking too, and then, you know, you have babies that are not, their, their quality of life is either super bad and they die fast or never, you know, completely normal. But potentially you could set up a, an experiment, especially with something, you know, like a, a Burmese or a, even a carpet python where you have... 30 or 40 eggs, and you could just 
increase the temperature if you split them into groups of eight so each each week of incubation you could have one of them spike the temp up you know three or four degrees or whatever and try to figure out when that point is in incubation um, and you could potentially you know purposely incubate your eggs that way and make babies with that striping but it would not be heritable so people can't really do that unless they know your you know recipe of of your environmental change that you're causing. Um, with other animals, you know, with the geckos, I, I just don't have any experience, but it certainly would be possible. Uh, the downside to it is if you're experimenting very much with temp changes or, or chemicals or anything like that is that, you know, you're going to probably kill some babies that otherwise wouldn't die. So, But okay. it's it's certainly something that's theoretically possible, um, in geckos, I would have absolutely no idea where to start. But have you seen some some traits that kind of pop up randomly, and when people breed them, they never go anywhere? Um, that's a good question. Well, besides, you know, the, the, we're getting back to those little paradox blocks that kind of look like birthmarks. They they actually seem to be heritable sometimes. It seems like they reproduced over and over again with certain lines. But other than that, um, no, I'm not. I can't. I'm not on the, not off the top of my head. But what I'm more concerned with, what I'm more getting at is, you know, there's a couple of traits that, like for instance, the ball python world has that we haven't discovered yet with leopard geckos. Like we haven't unlocked. And that's my next question, by the way. We haven't unlocked the uh, melanistic or the true leucistic gene yet with mm-hmm. leopard geckos. We have just about everything else. Or or a true genetic stripe. Uh, we don't technically have that right yet. We we do have some reverse stripes and stripes, but they're more of a polygenic effect. So, but, um, so yeah, I, I'd like to, if there is a way to somehow, you know, get one of these genes to wiggle loose on us, you know, and, uh, and show itself, yeah, yeah. and then from that point on, be genetic, or heritable, that would be awesome. Yeah, if if there was a way that you could randomly be causing mutations that you could, you know, maybe someday it would be the one you wanted, um, certainly going to kill way more animals than than uh, than you're going to have. <laughs> um, so we just we just got to wait, wait it out, and keep breeding and wait for them to pop yeah. out. A genome sequenced. And we had good annotation, and somebody was able to do the work and figure out where some of these genes are. So we basically are educated on the actual sequences of these genes and where they are. Then we could go, and we'd have to have that, you know, another species like ball pythons or something like that. So say theoretically, 10 or 20 years from now, I have a ball python genome sequenced, leopard gecko genome sequenced. And there's been enough annotation and work from people that are interested in morphs and stuff like that that I know where the genetic stripe gene is and where the, you know, leucistic, you know, the Mojave, Lesser, all those things cause leucistics. I know specifically where those genes are, what their sequences are. Then there are things that I could do as a molecular biologist uh, purposely. I can actually inject into embryos, very early embryos, I could inject something in 
to either knock down or knock out a gene. Um, and so in that way, if it got to that point, it would be expensive because <laughs> to do that, uh, and I would have to play with the embryos for a while. I don't know if anyone's done, you basically either be injecting, um, they're called in, uh, short inhibiting uh, RNA or you would be putting in a homologous piece of DNA, homologous to the gene that you want to knock out, but you take out the part that a part that's very important for it to function properly. And then with homologous recombination, you'll basically swap out the, the bad gene for the good gene, and then that animal is basically not going to have that gene functioning anymore. Um, so those are things that we can do in mice easy, and you know many other species we can do that pretty easily. Um, but I, I don't know. I think people have done it in reptiles, but there's just not as much money for that. And like I said, we would have to have knowledge, sequencing knowledge, to be able to design the right, you know, strategy to to knock those out. Um, but yeah, other than that, I would say it would be mostly a lot of dead and messed up babies if you're just messing with you know, some kind of compounds that mess with DNA and so you're basically causing random mutations. The majority of random mutations are going to lead to a non-viable embryo. And so a lot of the time, that's one thing I, I always thought was funny. We have four kids and each time we'd go, you know, they ask if, you know, if you've had any miscarriages and with my background in reproduction, I know the majority of miscarriages women have, they'll never even know they had it because it happens so early on that <laughs> there was no sign that they actually had a miscarriage because it's really early in embryonic development. But anyway, the majority of the, the mutations you would be causing would be making those embryos crash early on and you wouldn't even know what happened. Then you'd mm -hmm. still have another wave that would be messed up and <laughs> so unfortunately just throwing dart at the board in humans there's 25,000 different genes so even if you could focus your mutating strategy to where you're hitting a gene because only a small portion of the genome is actually genes that express a lot of its in intronic sequence that is not expressed um so even if you could focus on those 25,000 leopard geckos, I don't think we even know how many different genes there are. But but anyway, it would be it would be a very daunting task <laughs> until we know okay. sequence information and we know, you know where where the genes are and another species. Then we could go into the homologous sequence in the leopard gecko and design some kind of a knockout. Well, you Doctor, you, you did say. I, Hold on a second, Jim. Let me just expand on this real quick. You did say earlier that some of these uh, traits could be expressing themselves as, you know, basically trying this or that to see if it'll work in a, in a particular environment. Um, mm -hmm. So basically, something. So basically, something that the animal itself is experiencing, it could in its environment could be causing a certain trait to be expressed in its offspring, and if that's the case then for for if I were, all right, say I wanted to make it all dark black gecko, what if I kept the, the parents of, of the said 
next generation in an environment that was completely black and you know they had to blend in with those surroundings would would that be a good first step into trying to that from happening or is that too science fiction like um well the the idea works if you're thinking on the population level and you have to have predators present um which artificial selection is a little nicer than <laughs> natural selection but yeah if you if you had 10,000 geckos and you put them in a dark place and you had predators there then yeah they're going to pick off the ones that are lighter and so eventually it's going to naturally select for the ones that are darker but i mean we can do that ourselves without you know them being exposed to predators <laughs> so right it's, it's okay i have uh, one more one more question uh-huh. Um, okay, uh, we have a gene called the eclipse gene, which, uh, for lack of a better term, seems to be a simple recessive. However, some of us think that there's a little bit more uh, going on with it than others. Um, sometimes it gives us eye pigmentation uh, in the effect where it has a marbling effect. Other times it gives us solid black eyes. Sometimes it gives us silver eyes with no pigmentation at all, but it also has other effects. Uh, that not only affect the, the markings, uh, but pattern as well. Sometimes it gives a patternless effect. Sometimes it um, breaks up pattern where there normally would be a lot of pattern. It can be pretty this random. Is, this is all in the eye? Um, no, this is... Or you're well, talking no, about like pattern of the animal. Pattern of the animal, yes. It has eye pigmentation and pattern. So, yeah, there, it, it, and it has a different effect on when it's combined with other morphs. And um, some breeders say that it acts almost like a gene unlocker, where it can potentially unlock new traits. And other breeders say that's a completely false way of describing the gene, that there's no such thing as a gene unlocker. Um, so my question to you is, um, is there any genes out there that could unlock other potential heritable traits? Or, or any other, is there any traits out there that could unlock more? Yeah, so traits? as a, a, you know, a geneticist, <laughs> with, you know, talking strict genetics, um, there's two yeah. different terms that would pop in my mind immediately what you're talking about. Uh, one is epistasis and the other one is pleiotropy. So um, okay. epistasis, uh, let me make sure, it's been a while since I've, so epistasis, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, um, uh, what are they called, uh, Labrador retrievers, black and yellow, and that mm -hmm. inheritance. Are you guys familiar with that? Yes. So there, there's basically uh, one locus or one, one gene that will tell you whether, or will give it like the black pigmentation or whatever, but then there's a second gene. It doesn't have anything to do with the pigment itself, but it basically affects whether that first gene can it be expressed or not. And so there's two different ways you could have no dark pigmentation. One could be at the first gene that's the pigmentation gene that you, you uh, have the allele that doesn't give you any pigment. The other way could be is you could have the pigment gene there at the first gene, but the second gene says no, you don't get to express in this animal. It just completely shuts it down. 
and that's definitely possible. Um, another, the the other term, pleiotropy, is in many genes are pleiotropic. Um, what happens there is that one gene affects several traits, and there's certainly plenty of examples of that in all kinds of different organisms. Um, you can certainly have one gene affecting several different traits. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely lots of examples of that. If you go into the ball python world, um, you look at at the same locus, the same gene, you have different alleles, yellow belly, specter, um, I don't remember all of them, spark, I think is another one. So these are all at the exact same, you know, they're the same gene. It's the same with Mojave, Lesser, Butter. So they're all alleles of one gene, but they do express slightly differently. And so you basically, with one gene, you can get several different traits, just depending on which allele you have there, whether you have Mojave or Lesser or whether you have a yellow belly or you have a specter or whatever. There's certainly examples in ball pythons where at one, you know, for one gene, you can see different traits. If you compare a superstripe ball python to an ivory or a, or a puma, they look very different, but they're they're all the super form or homozygous form of this one gene. So there definitely could be something there. If somebody has some some breeding results uh, from from that specific, you know, working with that specific trait and want to send them to me, I'd be more than happy to look at it and see if, if anything pops out at me. That's the kind of stuff I geek out on for sure. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll definitely send that off to you. Hey, Tim, let's not forget, this week, let's send them a bunch of stuff about eclipses, because that's like, that's like a very controversial thing in our community, the eclipse gene. But I, so, I thought, and I was just reading while, while you guys were talking, I thought that the marble eye and the eclipse were not related. I thought they're, they're totally not. separate things. Oh, okay, From the way you not. said it, the way you said it, uh, I don't think it, it sounded like that. Well, no. Well, I said that the eclipse gene has eye, gives eye pigmentation sometimes in a marbling effect, and sometimes solid black eye, sometimes just like kind of like an eclipse, like an eclipse moon uh, would look like, and sometimes there's no pigment at all. But then there's another gene that we have that since that seems to only affect eye pigmentation. That's called a marble eye, and um, you know it, that. But the eclipse gene. Unlike the marble eye, the marble eye seems to only affect eye pigmentation. The eclipse gene not only affects eye pigmentation, but it also affects color and pattern sometimes because it kind of acts like it seems like it, it's like an overlay, and it kind of washes out. Like like if you have a really bright orange gecko, and you add the eclipse gene into that project, in a lot of cases that eclipse gene strips away a lot of that rich orange color. And, uh, you know, gives it a less colorful look. So, like, really pretty eclipses are hard to come by. You have to really selectively breed for them because you have to compensate for this gene that kind of washes out that color. Um, And in addition to doing that, when you add the eclipse gene to, say, a a gecko with really bold markings, it'll break up those markings a little bit, and and they won't express as bold. Um, So, you know, there's – and other uh, other effects – People think that it um, 
it has other effects too. But you know, but like I said, the, the question, the, the part in question is, can the eclipse gene make other traits that could then become genetic or uh, heritable on their own? Could could this one gene, by breeding it to each other over and over, can unlock something new that will be its own separate heritable trait and go on to be reproducible? That's the question. So, but I yeah. think the answer to that, you know. Yeah, yeah, and if if I was talking like strictly genetics, I would word it differently. But yes, that, you know, unlocking, I wouldn't necessarily call it that. If you're talking, you know, genetic speak, you would say it allows a, a gene to be expressed or shuts down the expression. Like with the with the Labrador Retriever, yellow, brown, black. Um, that second gene can completely shut off the expression of the first gene. So, but yeah, okay. it's it is yeah similar to what you're saying um, that unlocking or or completely locking up, just completely shutting down that the effect or the ability of the cells in that animal to produce that protein is just totally shut down. That's possible. Like I said, okay. I'd, I'd have to see breeding results. Um, the the best would be for me to see parents, and it, if someone does a good job of explaining, it could potentially put them into you know categories of color and eye and stuff like that. But um, otherwise, if if I have pictures of adults and offspring for a few generations and stuff like that, and I I totally love playing with that kind of stuff. That's I enjoy that. So <laughs> so if someone wants to pass that along, and that's something that. You know, it could potentially be submitted for a publication in herpetological review. They've, I've had one. Uh, they had a herpeticulture section. I don't know if they still do, but um, and then also obviously in some of the herp magazines. So if someone has data that they want to share, I'd be happy to play with it. And if it's interesting, I'd be happy to help write it up and submit it to you. Okay, we can send you animals too if you want them. You can work with it yourself. <laughs> Uh, I I did keep I had three leopard geckos I think in about '04, um, but I ended up trading them for a snake because it's when you're used to working with pythons and then all of a sudden switching to geckos it is way more work. I mean I can if I if I need to be gone for a week or two if I just make sure water's okay and kind of turn temps down a little I mean I'm fine you know I don't have to do anything I I usually will have we to suffer for our buy. geckos. Right, yeah, yeah, you definitely do. It's way more, way more work. So yeah, you you don't want to send me. <laughs> that would be bad. <laughs> not not unless I change my my habits. <laughs> but at but at the same time, Doc, I I would think that the uh, the uh, quick generational uh, rate, if that's the, if those are the correct terms, would would also pique your interest in um, yeah. in terms of what you could selectively breed for. Yeah, that definitely helps. Yeah, they call it a generation interval. Yeah, the shorter the generation interval, and the more the more uh, offspring you can get from one cross in one generation, the better for figuring those kinds of things out. So yeah, certainly the leopard geckos are better than some of the python species. You have to wait three or four years for a female to be ready to breed. Yeah, geckos are good for people with ADD. <laughs> And Doc, I've heard you mention um the uh the website um a, a spreadsheet for putting data in. There are several um morphs 
in leopard geckos that people are not sure if they're uh, polygenic or recessive uh, or incomplete dominant. Um, so uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so there's a, a professor, I think it's the University of Delaware. But anyway, what you type in is, bio, uh, let's see, the Handbook of Biological Statistics, I believe is what it's called. Um, the the specific test you want to use is, is called a chi-square test, and you can just do it just in Excel, um, but his the way he has it set up is really nice because he has a page on chi-square test, and I guess to kind of explain a little bit more what you said briefly, if you're in a situation where you have a trait you think is heritable, you're not sure whether it's line bred or if it's simple recessive or incomplete dominant or whatever, um, you have some some ratio, you know, offspring that, that uh, have the trait, don't have the trait, and you know what the parents were. So you basically <clears throat> can take that information. You need to know what your expected ratio is. So, like, if it's a simple recessive and you're breeding two hets, your expected ratio is one and four, and then you put in your observed results, which could be 23 and 37 or whatever, you put that in the spreadsheet and it'll tell you what the probability is uh, that those two averages are the same, basically. And uh, so if it says that there's less than a 0.05 chance, then that would tell you with 95% confidence that that what you're observing is not simple recessive. But anything above that would tell you, yeah, there's a chance this is a simple recessive trait. And for each one we test, the one you're interested in is the chi-squared test. You click on that, you'll have a whole bunch of information that he's done a good job of making it as easy to understand. It's still statistics, and I know a lot of people don't enjoy that. And I definitely appreciate that. But he's done an exceptional job of making it as simple to understand as you can, and then putting together a spreadsheet with an example so you can see how he put the numbers in um, so that you could then put your own numbers in. And that's that's a good way to, to kind of test if you have some, you know, if you only have one cross that you've done, one male, one female, that's not going to tell you anything. But if you have, you know, several breedings, um, especially if you have it over multiple generations that you can put in there, that would give you a good idea of whether you're seeing a you know, single gene, simple recessive, dominant, whatever, or if it's a or like a polygenic trait. Yes, and I, I was able to find it. It's uh, biostathandbook.com. Okay. Yep. And uh, so that'll that'll clear up all the questions that. Uh, people have because you know you always hear people say um that they worked with it and they they think it's this or that but um the way you explain it if we if we collect the correct data and enter it in it should be very clear correct it, it will give you an idea um it's uh the unfortunate thing is the only the only time it'll tell you for sure is if it's not <laughs> what you think. So if you think it's simple recessive and it gives you a p-value less than 0.05, then you know it's not simple recessive. 
Um, but if it doesn't give you a p-value below 0 0.05, then it's still a chance that it's unprocessive, but it could be that your sample size is too small. So if, if you sent me the numbers and you had, you know, 7 and, and 14 and the p-value was, you know, above 0 0.05, so you're saying, hey, you know, this could be unprocessive, I would say, well, it might be, but you need more numbers. <laughs> Uh, but if if when you put it in the first time, if it gives you a p value below 0 0.05, yeah, you know it's not simple recessive, then you don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, but if you send me, you know, you have 350 of this and 700 of this, and it's giving you a p value above 0 0.05, then yeah, I'd say yeah, that's there's a very good chance that that's simple recessive. Yes, that's what I was referring to as a, a large sample size. Um, yeah. Obviously, yeah, that's the only thing I want to make sure people know. If they're doing it on their own, it it, it doesn't necessarily mean it. If you're doing a small sample size, then that's why whenever you read anything in in the literature, it's always going to have sample size along with the p value. So you definitely are going to have to have several individuals. Or if there's you know several breeders doing the 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 same you know crosses. Right. And all collecting the the same data, then that's you know increasing the, the sample size. Yeah, they could pull those those crosses together and and, and put in the expected and, and actual and or observed. Yeah. And what uh, are you familiar with the the glowfish stock? Uh, the production of glowfish for the pet industry. Correct. Yeah, yep, yep. I've done that kind of stuff. <laughs> and did fish. you? Yes, um, with fish, you said. I have not done it with fish. No. Oh, you've not. Done I'm similar kind of stuff. Not not necessarily to to put the like in that case they're putting fluorescent proteins in uh, to make the fish glow different colors. But yeah, that's that's something that that you can do with any animals. I think uh I think that's what Dave's working on to be uh the first one to do it with leopard geckos. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. He's looking he's looking for his uh shortcut to uh no, to, no, to the... no, no, no. no shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> but it is only a matter of time. I you know, they, they started the glowfish was the first genetically modified pet available. And then uh, they did it with the uh, the frogs, uh, the African clawed frogs. And I the, uh, seen that. I knew about the fish, but I didn't know about the frogs. That's that's interesting. Oh no! They, and they also do it with axolotls. I thought so, it was something uh, that they. I thought it was a dye that they're injecting into them. That's an actual well, genetic. That, that's a yeah, trait now. They're actually genetically modifying. They're putting. The first one that was done was GFP, or green fluorescent protein. So it's a protein, I think, from a jellyfish, if I remember right. Correct, And so yes. they take that, that gene. And actually, in, in biology, actually, I guess I have done it with that specific protein, but it wasn't to make an animal. It was just to test. So in, in molecular biology, there's a lot of different things we want to try to put genes in for. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the... Uh, induced pluripotent stem cells at all, but that's a really big part of medical research and regenerative medicine. But the reason why we're able to make them is because we put 
some DNA in. Uh, it's called a transfection. So you take foreign DNA and put it into a cell and then um, able to make an individual from that uh, in the fish case. But most of the time when I'm doing it, it's just to make cells to test different things and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, the green fluorescent protein we use a lot. If there's a protein we're, we're trying to produce, when we put the DNA in to make that protein, we'll also put in GFP at the same time as a control to test and see if our method of getting the DNA into the cell worked because we can see the GFP really easily. We just put it under fluorescent light and it glows, and we know the transfection worked. And it doesn't affect the health of the frog or axolotl uh, um, in those cases? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they've even put them into pig. You can find pig uh, fluorescent pigs. <laughs> or the whole pig glows under fluorescent light. Uh, it doesn't and seem to cause any problems yet that I know of. There might be like a, there might be some kind of sensitivity to some types of light like UVB or something like that. Maybe, I don't know. I've never I've never produced animals with it myself. I just use it in cells to, to test and make sure things are working. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's the general consensus is it really doesn't change much of what the cells are doing or what that organism's doing. You're able to do that, and it doesn't really affect things too much. They they also used um, I, I believe it was uh, from uh, sea corals uh, some uh, DNA from sea corals to uh, make a, a different colored fish. Um, yeah, and and it says that the original uh, I'm reading it online. Uh, the original goal uh, was to develop a fish that could detect pollution by selectively fluorescing in the presence of environmental toxins. <laughs> and I and I know you know you mentioned the the pigs that I know they've done it with rodents as well, and yeah. um, I'm I'm sure it has a lot of uh, potential in terms of. Um, you know, cancer research and, and things like that, if they can easily see, you know, the the sample because it, it glows, you know, it'd be pretty easy to detect the presence of what they're looking for. Yeah, that's, I can see that the theoretical, that, that you'd have to mess with the type of promoter that's driving it so that it only turns on when there's a certain environmental present or whatever, but yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't hadn't seen or read about that. That's pretty cool. So we'll take yeah. some, uh, take some, some fiddling around to make it work, though. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, the last question I had for you was, uh, I was curious. You know, if if you did have a, a large colony of leopard geckos and and you were uh, selectively breeding um, for for something, what what would you be breeding for? And and you had asked me. Um, about twinning in leopard geckos, and I'm not aware of uh, of twinning in leopard geckos. Dave, do you are you aware of of that ever happening? Uh, twins inside a inside a single egg um, happens yeah. rare, rarely, but yes, it does occur. Um, it doesn't seem it does. to be any. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be anything that. Um, uh, well, it, it, they they have they're half the size of a normal hatchling, of course, and. Uh, they seem to grow up uh, just at a slower rate. It just takes them a little longer to get to a normal size, but it doesn't seem to be anything that 
um, affects their overall health in the long run. From what I've from what I've seen, um, there there I've seen I've actually had a couple eggs that just didn't make it. That when I opened them, there was twins inside. But I guess uh, not all of those are gonna are gonna survive to actually hatch. But uh, it does happen. Yeah. I don't know too much about it though. Yeah, with the the twinning with the ball python that the Sutherland's had, it it actually, from from my analysis, looking at everything, was actually a good thing. Um, it didn't seem like I didn't have high enough numbers out of all those eggs. There was only like thirteen or fifteen, something like that, that that were twins. Um, but anyway, uh, it actually, if it was heritable, I would have suggested that you would want to select for it because you get you know, twice as many babies, <laughs> and they they did they did you know it was a little bit more time for them to get to you know the same size as the other clutch mates that weren't twins, but they seemed to always do fine. They had one egg out of those thirteen or fourteen or fifteen uh, where one of the twins died early on, but all the rest of them they raised them all up, you know, at least far enough to where they were able to sell them and some of them they kept as breeders and stuff. So, so yeah. So, uh, to pose the question again, if, if you were, um, you know, doing it for, for something other than, than color and, and pattern, what, uh, what would you select for? Um, so uh, obviously my philosophy is going to come from more cause I know what the problems are with pythons <laughs> and I don't, have experience with leopard geckos, so I don't know for sure what the problems are there. That breeders, you know, they wish they fed better, they wish they would grow faster, or they wish they didn't have egg binding problems or whatever. Um, but yeah, you you basically want to look and see what are the things that are gonna make your operation the most efficient and be able to produce consistently good, healthy, hardy babies. Um, so one of them I would always put in there as something I would test for heritability and be able to select for would be healthy offspring. Um, I would also like weight gain. So I would imagine with leopard geckos it's similar to snakes where there seems to be both an age component and a size component. So even if you have a four-year-old python female, if you haven't fed her well enough, she's big enough, she's still not going to ovulate. And the same side, same you know, kind of the flip side of that, you could have one that's only 18 months, but you fed really well that she might actually still go for you, and sometimes they do. Um, so anyway, uh, they they call it um, for for cattle, it's a a weanling weight and a yearling weight are are two traits that they'll select for. Um, so whatever the equivalent of that would be for leopard geckos, I would want to make sure that I have babies that are eating well, growing quickly. Um, another trait they select for is feed efficiency. And that's really only worth selecting for if feed is a significant cost for you, which I don't know, you know, the dynamics with leopard geckos, but they can actually select for in some animals that's heritable and they can so you feed this cow, this, you know, cow you feed it 500 pounds of grain and it's going to grow so much more than another one, you know, a different line. You feed it the exact same amount, but it's not going to grow as much. You know, that, that you can actually select for and, and improve your breeding stock so that they're 
more feed efficient. Um, but yeah, and then another really obvious one is if there's ever egg binding problems and that's heritable at all, then you want to wipe that out. You don't want to have that problem. Um, yeah, clutch most size. Clutch size is a huge one for pythons um, with geckos. Is there a lot of variation? I, I honestly don't know this. Like how many clutches you'll get from an individual female? Is there some lines that you'll get? two or three or four more clutches a year from others, or is it kind of more uniform? Dave, that's a better question for you to answer. Um, yeah, I don't know. It depends. You I, know, it depends I, on... Go ahead, Tim. What? I, I think it, it's more environmental, and, and with the, the variability, the big variability that people don't measure with leopard geckos is, is the food intake. Um, so, so in terms of answering that, it's, it's kind of tough to answer, but, um, you know, most of the things you mentioned, no, they aren't issues. You know, egg binding is is not an issue with leopard geckos. Um, uh, and, and getting back to what you uh, were talking about, I believe, uh, Mike Lehman at the Gourmet Rodent, they, they talk about, and he didn't discuss it on the show. We just recently had him on. But uh, I think they do about six or seven months um, from egg to egg to, to you know, raise up babies and, and to get them producing. So it's, wow. they're, they're really pushing it. You know, most people do about a year. Um, you know, okay. they raise, raise them up and get them to a healthy weight and in about a year they'll start breeding them. But, um, at the gourmet rodent, they're, they're pushing it to six or seven months. Yep. And see that if that's purely environmental, then there's not really anything to select for. You just, if you want them to go earlier, you feed them more. Um, but if there is a genetic component to that, then, and it's heritable, then that's something you could select for. But, once again, like we talked about earlier, you can't just focus on one trait. So then you need to look at female lifespan. You need to look at um, eggs per year. The ones you push really hard only lay a few eggs that first year, and somehow their body says, okay, I laid you know, four clutches. I, the rest of my life, I'm only going to lay four clutches. Then you don't want to select for that. So you need to think about more than just that one thing. But that that's kind of the tough thing is figuring out what's important, what's heritable, and then also how, if you select for that, if it's going to cause a negative trait <laughs> somehow else. Yeah, it's it's believed in leopard geckos, uh, according um, to Ron Tremper, uh, that they go through a menopause. Um, so they're, yeah. they're kind of, that females are born with a, a certain number of, of ova, and um, once they're used up, they're used up. That's interesting. Another reason why you should get into them, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> I've I've had um, you know like fourteen-year-old females produce, um, but but I didn't breed them often earlier in their life. Um, I had many seasons where I wouldn't breed them at all, and I think that um, you know had had to do with their longevity. Um, Ron also thinks that uh, not to get too far off. But uh, Ron also thinks that they, the females will often decline after they go through that menopause. Like they'll decline food? 
uh, they'll they'll just yeah they'll they'll, they'll lose weight they'll lose weight and basically oh, die off. Oh, their overall health declines. I got you. Yes. Yeah, and see, from an environmental standpoint, that makes sense as a life history trait that if they're not going to contribute to the next generation at all, if there's no, you know, kind of grandparent care and they're not helping to care for the younger generations and they can't reproduce anymore, then it makes sense that, unfortunately, for their species to be the most efficient, then it makes sense that those ones would die out of the population and not be using resources. It's a lot of interesting stuff. We really appreciate you coming on and and taking the time to discuss all this with us, Doc, and uh, we'd love to have you back again. Um, We won't keep you up all night tonight, um, but... uh, why don't you give your, um, you know, your website information and uh, anything else that you want to talk about? All right, yeah. Um, I, first of all, I definitely enjoyed being on here. I always worry that I nerd out too much, and <laughs> so hopefully, uh, hopefully, this has been interesting for people and definitely stuff awesome I love interview. to think about. I'd certainly be happy to come back on. Um, the website uh, for for our apps um, is, I believe, <laughs> it's www.australianaddiction.com. So there's no S at the end, just Australian Addiction. Um, that's the same. You can find us on Facebook. Um, and uh, Justin does a much better job than I do of keeping things, you know, putting new things up on the website and on Facebook. But I get a few things on there. Um, and then on our website, if you go to the about phone number and email, it's probably the one that's done the the most ge- gecko work. Nice uh, cool. in the area. Oh, he's now through there. I know for lizards and genetics, it's pretty much whoever see that. What the heck was that? Sorry about that. Tim, you <laughs> that okay? Was, uh, yeah, it was uh, a pipe in my boiler room fell down. <laughs> Dope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That was loud, even on my headset here. Wow. Jeez. Well, yes, Dr. Morell, it was an awesome interview. I seriously appreciate you coming on. I, I feel like we could have gone on for another few hours. I'm sure you could have, too. Um, we definitely got to do a part two in the future if that's cool with you. Yep, that sounds good to me. Awesome. All right, great. All right, well, we'll let you go, and uh, we'll be able to uh, listen. I'll probably listen to this broadcast a few more times during the week and get it all absorbed. But uh, thanks again very much for staying up late with us tonight. No problem. Thanks again for having me. Thanks so much, Doc. And and uh, if anyone wants to hear, um, he's done several other uh, blog talk shows. So if you just uh, type in Ben Morrell in, in the search, um, you'll be sure to find some of those on-demand episodes, and uh, you can learn a lot more uh, listening to those shows. And uh, go ahead, Dave. You want to uh, roll the roll the rest of the show? Yeah, let's uh, let's play the outro, and we'll come right back, and we'll do our closing remarks. Hang tight, folks. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Geckos creation and production. 
you can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, folks, uh, what a great show. Tim had to uh, get going. I think he has a crazy plumber over there that's trying to kill him or something, throwing pipes around. But uh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, this was one of those episodes that is going to be a go-to genetics episode. Okay, we talk about genetics a lot on the show, but now hearing it from an actual geneticist, I think it will help all of us just have a better idea about what we're doing and what we're working with and how these things express and affect each other, affect the the animals that we're working with. Uh, and I hope you guys got a lot out of this episode and looking forward to doing it again down the line. So uh, before we go, I just want to, uh, of course, thank our sponsors, Dale's Bearded Dragons, uh, AB Dragons, Gecko Boa Reptiles, Supreme Gecko, Ohio Gecko, Rainbow Mealworms, Reptiles Express, Mr. Ron Tremper, GiantLeopardGecko.com, and MS2 Premium Insect Chow. And last but not least, Daryl Burton from Longhorn Geckos. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, we will see you next week. And next week we have Jason White from Daily Reptile News. He is back broadcasting several times a week good to have him back uh, in the community doing what he loves, and uh, we'll, we'll catch up with him and see what he's been up to. He's been on a bit of a hiatus lately, so uh, see if he's well-rested and ready to get back down into the action. So, uh, alright, folks, have a good night, and uh, yeah, let's play a song before we go. Where I've been going to a place where, place where nobody knows.
be right where I was before But I'm not alone You said take my hand and we go So cloudy, and my heart's so crowded with hate. I am so frustrated, like my soul's been taken away. Broken promise, uh, everything that I thought you were. Thought you said this would never hurt. That's what it did. Oh, 